The Linux Action Show is created by Jupiter Broadcasting. It's sponsored by Ting. Go to last.ting.com to save off your first device or plan and DigitalOcean. Go over to digitalocean.com and use our promo code LASTDIGITAL and then you can spin up your own Linux rig for free. Welcome to Linux Action Show, episode 387. My name is Chris. And my name is Noah. Hey there, Noah. Good afternoon Hi. to you, sir. Guess what? Big show today. I'm wearing my pajamas because I have been neck down, knee deep, and, well, I'm not going to say the other one, in password managers this week. I'm worn out because it has been a heck of a week to pick the right and best password manager. I wanted something open source, something secure, and something under my control. That goes for Noah, too. And we're going to go through our top picks to replace LastPass this week. Plus, in the news segment, the SteamOS machines are out. First reviews are in. Red Hat's got a big purchase. And did you know you can run GIMP? In your web browser. Plus, we've got a great batch of feedback. But Noah, before all of that, you know what it is. The fix! <laughs> you are wow, man. That's some energy. That's right. It's I'm, the fix. I'm really excited about the pick. Yeah, that was intense, man. I hope we didn't make anybody get in a car accident with that. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, let's start with the runs Linux pick because this week it's awesome. This etch a sketch runs Linux. What the heck, Noah? An etch a sketch? So my son has been playing with uh, with an Etch-a-Sketch, a, a cheapo version from like the Dollar Tree. Sure. And uh, and the uh, a viewer actually posted this in the, in the subreddit. And this is like one. It, it's one of those things that it where they combine something really nostalgic with some really cool tech, and then it becomes really cool. And so basically, it is a software defined Etch-a-Sketch. And so. Uh, <laughs> It's a software-defined radio uh, combined with an etch a sketch, so you can you can uh, you can adjust. I, I believe it's the frequency and amplitude. I would guess <laughs> of the other two dials. Okay, and and he has built it. But the cool thing is, like, look at the way he has designed the chassis. He's got this like red-looking traditional etch a sketch like thing with right. the traditional white little knobs. Right. Like it actually reminds me of an etch a sketch. Yeah. So he did a really cool job, yeah. and of course, yeah. the entire thing runs Linux. Yeah, in 2015, it's actually not very hard to to cram a computer into the rough housing and shape and size of an Etch-a-Sketch. Exactly. It's actually quite doable, so that's pretty interesting. Uh, we're listening in the background to him working on it. And he's got an antenna there. This is fascinating. So we have a link in the show notes if you guys want to read about this a little bit more. But, uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, upon boot, the Etch-a-Sketch uh, opens up GQRX and is ready for tuning within seconds of turning it on. In addition to using it as a portable SDR, software-defined radio, with GQRX, the Etch a Sketch can also be booted into just normal Linux mode. <laughs> you know, so you can use it as a desktop computer as well. <laughs> a desktop computer in the shape of an Etch Sketch. Now that's a tablet, Noah. That is that is yes. a heck of a tablet. Yes. You know that's what? That's what I would use. You could use those knobs to move the mouse around. Like if they hooked it up software-wise, you could dial in the mouse. You know, early mice, the early experimentation with a mouse. They had a lot of different. Uh, they had a lot of different ways to interact with the computer, and the mouse was controlled by something similar, not turning knobs instead of moving a mouse around. So it right. might just work. You never know, Noah. But you think about it, this could be a really cool way to introduce like a kid to software-defined radio or anything mm -hmm. like that. I, I, I really, really, really wish I knew more about what the hell software-defined radio was and how I could use it, because it seems really cool. And you probably know a little bit about. Yeah. So, so essentially, basically, um, we, everything that involves radio waves happens on a frequency, right? And we're introduced to that at a very young age. We know that we get into the car, the low part of the FM band is, is 88 megahertz and the high is like what, 108, 109, right. something like that. Yep. And so, and, and so we have, we have, that is pretty ingrained because the stations advertise their actual frequency. But when we get to like television, even before we got to the digital portion, 
nobody really knew what channel 35 was. And if I told somebody, well, did you know that channel whatever in your television is about 50 megahertz? That really doesn't mean anything. No. And when we get little walkie talkies, we know that their channel one or two is somewhere in the 50 megahertz. But you don't you're not actually cognizant of that. You bought those little radios for your for your uh, camper. I know those are somewhere in the 400 megahertz range. But you just know that you you and Hadia were both on channel six. And right. so you could yep. talk to each other. Right. right. Yeah. And so software defined radio makes it more obvious of what part of, of that frequency spectrum you're playing with. And so, for instance, airband is around 100 megahertz, well, between 100 and 130 megahertz. And so you could you could take the software defined radio and listen at somewhere around 100 or 130 megahertz and start listening to aircraft. And then you could go to 140 megahertz and listen to amateur radio and so on and so forth. That is super slick. That is super slick. So I could pick different. Oh, OK. All right. So you've picked mm -hmm. my maybe we have an episode in our future. Why don't we take a moment and thank DigitalOcean, sponsor of the Linux Action Show. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way to spin up your own cloud server. And uh, well, it's funny, your own cloud server. You could spin up your own own cloud server. This week, I used a DigitalOcean droplet to manage and store my passwords. It's the master repo. I'm going to talk more about it in the show this week, but uh, stay tuned for that. But I, I, there are so many use cases for DigitalOcean. And when it came time for me to roll my own cloud-based Password management system? It was obvious to go to DigitalOcean. It was obvious. So if you use our promo code, LASDIGITAL, one word, lowercase, you get a $10 credit over DigitalOcean. Now that'll get you the $5 rig, two months, absolutely free, no credit card, nothing like that required. You just log in, use the promo code LASDIGITAL, and then after the couple of months expires, you can link it to a PayPal account or a credit card or whatever. But uh, one of the really cool things about DigitalOcean is their interface. I, I wish desktop applications were designed as well as the DigitalOcean interface. It is so, so nice. So some of the early ways that I managed virtual machines, my early experience with that was with the VMware platform, and then later with the Citrix platform. But uh, VMware, it really burned me. I mean, VMware really, really upset me because it was at the peak of my introducing Linux, to the company, and I was so excited that VMware ESX ran on top of Linux at, a, at its core. But to manage VMware, it required Windows, and it was a horrible interface. It was very awful and super clunky and not intuitive at all. And DigitalOcean has managed to take Linux, KVM, and then they slap an amazing interface on top of it that is simple, straightforward, but yet incredibly powerful. You can deploy different distributions, one clicks for applications, you can back it up. You can transfer, you can deploy to all the different data centers. They have data centers in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, Germany, and a brand new one in Toronto, all from their web interface. And even better, they have a really, really straightforward API with a bunch of really great open source community applications already created. I love this about DigitalOcean. I invite you to check it out and use our promo code LASTDIGITAL. Get the $10 credit. After today's episode, you could have a whole bunch of new uses for DigitalOcean as well. Go check them out. DigitalOcean.com and use the promo code LASTDIGITAL. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring Linux Action Show. You know what I think the biggest uh, sales pitch DigitalOcean could ever do is buy people a service on a, on a competitor. I, this week, no, I'm, I, and I'm, I mean that this week I was, I was stuck with a, with, with a, I was working with a client and they had a different VPS provider mm. and their server kept shutting off. So I emailed their support and I said, Hey, uh, the server, is, and by the way, I have been a DigitalOcean customer for well over a year, probably closer to a little over two years. Never had anything even remotely like this. Uh, the server shuts off 
and I email support and I say, hey, the server shut off. Why did that happen? What happened? Why did yeah. that happen? The keyword <laughs> being why. They email me back and they say, hi, Noah, your server is working fine and I'm able to access it via RDP and VNC. Well, I know that. I, I see that now that it's back up that we've restarted. Why did it turn off? Well, they don't know. So then they email, then they, uh, then I email them. I say, yeah, you weren't clear. I wanted to know why. And then she goes, oh, it's been suspended due to, to, uh, to overdue payment. Well, the payment was, in fact, active and the credit card was fine. And so after we uh, got all that sorted out, I said, well, so the payment ended up being fine. Why did it sh shut up? And again, they write back and go, I'm able to access your server remotely. It seems to be up, uh, seems to be up again. And we went back and forth and like this for like 12 hours. We never did get an answer. Waste uh, of time, man. This wasn't, yeah, no kidding. And then finally they get to, here's, here was the final answer. She goes, I suggest you reinstall your server. Perhaps there is a error in the operating system. Oh. That was that was their answer. And, and not only have I not had that problem ever or anything no. even remotely no, close to not. it with DigitalOcean, when I do have problems, which are s seldom, if ever, actually DigitalOcean's fault, usually it's something I've screwed up, um, They their support would never even dream of sending me something like this. They would actually log in and, and, and do troubleshoot. I get logs from them. They ask for trace routes to and from the, the server, and then they, they troubleshoot things that way. But I have never had them tell me, oh, well, it's something I have to do. It, right. they, they assume the problem and take well, care here's of it. One of the, it, it. When you're talking about the OS level stuff, and one of the things I think is super slick about DigitalOcean is when they decided to deploy CoreOS or when they decided to, to deploy FreeBSD, they didn't just like go grab the ISO and like make a custom version of it for DigitalOcean or something like that. They contacted the upstream projects and said, here's our goals, here's our intentions, let's work together to make this work. And then, like in the case of CoreOS, they have a direct channel with CoreOS guys to get updates to DigitalOcean. It's not like, oh, there's something wrong with the system and, they, and the hardware, blah, blah, blah. It is a really nice integration. They treat everything like that. Yeah. I, I've, I've never been happier. And this customer is now left that VPS and is on DigitalOcean. We haven't had a problem since. So There you go. Very nice. <laughs> DigitalOcean.com, use the promo code LASTDIGITAL. Big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring Linux Action Show. Okay, Noah, so tell me about FreeMind. This looks really, really cool. It's, if I understand correctly, free mind mapping software. And mind mapping is big in a lot of places. This is a nice find. And I, I actually, Noah, I once worked in a corporation where they spent a thousand bucks per person for mind mapping software. So I didn't, uh, I routinely found myself going back to a notepad for a lot of things. I would pull a notepad out and, and simply because when I'm trying to get an idea down, it is just sometimes simpler to do it on a notepad. And that has served me well for a long time, except this week in the process of moving out of my house um, or getting my house ready to, to try and sell, I guess rather, um, I keep losing my notepads that I'm drawing, that I'm brainstorming on. And it started to cause me a real problem. And I started to think, well, how can I how can I substitute this? How can I get this into my computer? And 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 a, and a LibreOffice document or a drawing document or or a, or a presentation that none of those really fit the bill. And so I started by trying to use Gedit, um, just to kind of nail ideas Good down. Good man. It got me. It got me so far. It was all right, and it was a workable solution. But at the end of the day, I just found myself wanting to expand out. Like I had one idea, and then I wanted to like Branch categorize that. that idea. Yeah, exactly, and have smaller ideas come out of that idea, and then I had another idea. And so I started looking. I thought there's got to be software for this and something that I can run on Linux. And sure enough, I found FreeMind. And I tell you, Chris, this has changed the way I think about solving problems. So is this a uh, is this so this is is this a GTK app? Look, I'm looking at the Windows screenshot here. Is this like something you? Is it look okay on your desktop? Like I, just to tell me about that kind of stuff before you get into that. Is it run? Sure. Does it run okay? What was the installation like? Was it good? So I installed it on Arch, and so obviously it was in the AUR. 
Okay. Um, as far as the installation, it's the single command, and it showed up. It launches almost instantaneously. It, you know, LibreOffice takes a little bit to actually get opened up. This, when you have an idea and you want to get something down, <clears throat> especially when you're ADD, the launch time is really important. Yeah. It launches right up. Nice. It's also a really neat thing that this will probably drive a lot of people nuts, but I really like it. When it opens, it opens with all of the projects that you last had open. So I have seven or eight different maps mm, open mm, that I'm working yeah, on, yeah. and they all come open by default, and you have to tell it to close those maps. Otherwise, every time you open the program, they all come up. But I actually like having those persistent. Yeah, because then you can just get right back into it and add stuff to Ex it. Exactly, exactly. And I can keep ongoing things. I start to forget what things I was working on last time I had my laptop open, and, and it just brings them right up. Um, they, they have keyboard shortcutted all of the like adding different branches and, and mapping out. So when I, I put an idea in the center and then I can just hit the insert button and I have uh, another one branch off it, I hit the insert button. I have one off of that. Um, so it's really, it's the, the program stays out of my way and allows me to just think. And again, when you're ADD and, and you'll understand this, when you're getting interrupted every five or 10 minutes, <laughs> ha, ha, having the ability to say, hold on, before I answer that telegram, before I answer that phone call, let me just hit insert, type oh, that yes, idea down yeah. and then go back. Yeah. It's really important, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I have been able to, I have been able to map out, um, for instance, how we're going to do our, our new house, the rooms, the order, the priority, no. and then I can share that Perfect. with Sarah. Right. And she's been able to open that and, and, and give feedback and stuff. I mean, it is a it is a crazy program, and it has this week. It has gotten to the point now where if my laptop is on, mind map or free mind is open, and I have a mind map going of 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 everything, and it's just the place where I go to think on the computer. That's I I do all of my thinking, and then it gets formulated into actual documents or presentations or or whatever whatever is eventually going to happen. But it almost always starts now in free mind. And I'm absolutely in love with the program. I've become a fanboy practically overnight. I just installed it uh, about 10 seconds ago because um, I'm Arch. But uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> it, it looks really cool. Because people in the chat room are like, man, it looks like a really nice Windows 95 app. So I wanted to install it and see what it, how it looks uh, natively. And it, it's working fine. And it, yeah, you're right, Noah. It, it launched very fast. And then it mm -hmm. went right to just go ahead and make a map. Like here, it started a new thing right here with a node. And I can just start. This is really nice. This is, it, it's also not overdone either. So it's not too much stuff. Some t so the, the, the program I used when I worked for an IT consulting company was like a premier Windows mind mapping software where you had like group sharing capabilities and things like that. And when you'd open it up, it was a bajillion options and it would start with 30 different template options and all of this stuff. And, it, and by the time I got the new screen, the new page up, I was, I half forgot everything I wanted to talk about. Yeah. And the, the, the other thing, and I'm sure this is probably prevalent in all mind mapping software, but the other thing I like is there's no defined page size. Mm. And that was, you know, one of the things was, is I tried to emulate this kind of in LibreOffice drawing, but the problem is I'd have to keep going and resizing the page because I would branch out too far to the right and I had started in the center and or whatever. This, I can branch out as far as I want out to the right, and as far as I want out to the left, up, down, whatever. And one of the other things that I've always wanted to kind of do, and I've never really had the chance to, is I kind of want to make a family tree. We actually covered some software that was specifically designed for making family trees on Linux a, a couple of months ago, and I never really fully took it up because I was kind of afraid of the longevity of having my file locked inside of a software that only one piece of software could open. But because FreeMind is 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 a little bit more prevalent, it's a little bit has a little bit wider of a user base. I have no problem uh, writing it up in 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 uh, in FreeMind. So 
that's hmm. kind of a project I'm looking forward yeah. to. But it, it, like I said, it's become the de facto. I have to get an idea down. I have to type something down. I have to think about something. I just make the map, and it, all I do is just title it. At least I know that that's an idea that I have to work on at some point, and then I can come back and kind of pick around at it. Nice. No, well, I got it installed now, so uh, I will be checking out some more. Thank you, sir. Good pick. That's really cool. So it is FreeMind, and uh, we will have a link to that in the show notes, or you can go find it at freemind.sourceforge.net. Although I would probably just try to get it from my distro repo so that way I don't have to go to free or SourceForge, but whatever. Freemind.sourceforge.net, and it is uh, a really cool program. All right, so this week, our spotlight, we had a lot of options. We had a lot of things to consider. And uh, I wanted to, I, I decided just a few minutes before we went on air to give it to something relatively new and unproven. And I, I, I have not had a good chance to t- fully test this like I normally would with a spotlight or a nap pick. But if you're like me and you really freaking hate the Google Hangouts plugin in Chrome the way it pops up all the time and overgoes all the stuff. And if you sign in in one place, it's on all of the things and it's just awful. But you still need to communicate with people on Hangouts from time to time. And you'd like to be able to do it from your command line because, well, why not? I'd like to tell you about Hangups. It is an open source third-party instant messaging client for Google Hangouts. And as far as I know, it's pretty much the first of its kind. Hangups, and it's up on GitHub, it's an open source client, and it's uh, pretty much all written in Python. Um, And uh, it uses the proprietary non-interoperable protocol for Hangouts. They have implemented it by reverse engineering this protocol, which allows it to support features like group messaging that are not available in XMPP clients. It's still an early stage of development, but from the command line, you can actually use it. It's the first client that isn't XMPP. How cool is this? So, uh, also, Noah, other projects, because it's making available as a, they're making it available as a Python libra- library, uh, there's other projects out there like Telephony Hangups, uh, Pickups, uh, Hangups Bot, Ubuntu Hangups, Q Hangups, which is a, an interface written in PyQt. Uh, a lot of different projects now are able to take advantage of the work that this one singular project is, which means it's, it's freeing hangups from the horrible encapsulated web as a uh, app as a web page uh, hell that Hangouts has been in this whole time. And I don't know yeah. if you have experienced what I have experienced, because I know you're a Firefox oh. user, but under Chrome, now Chrome by default comes with Google Hangouts. And when you install Chrome, when the first time you launch it under Linux, it also then adds the Hangouts app, which automatically starts up, but it's, it's just a tiny like little web app, and it feels like a web app. It's totally crappy, and if you accidentally sign in on one, it signs in on all the computers, and then people start sending you Hangouts with their phone numbers in it while you're doing a live show, and it shows up on the live stream, and right. there's nothing you can do about it. Do you not remember my Hangouts, hell? No, I don't. It happened. It happened while I was in Seattle. So I remember we had. I remember having a conversation with you about it, and I remember like I was you and I were going back and forth. But I don't remember because my my problem was so fresh and raw. No, and my pain was raw. Yeah, I don't yeah, know if no, I remember. I know. Yeah, <laughs> I uh, we so we were we had a lot of stuff going on, and in <clears throat> at, in the process of LinuxCon, I left my laptop right. at the hotel. Right, and for me, that's like that's like the end of the world. Yeah, and so I wasn't. We weren't, weren't going to drive all the way back to get it, but. I had my, uh, so I borrowed one of your, one of the Bonobos or something like that, and I reloaded it, and when I installed Chrome, I all I wanted to do yes, after yes, I got I back this. into my stuff, I just wanted to watch Netflix while I <laughs> fell asleep. And so I installed Chrome thinking I would just open Chrome and sign into Netflix, but for whatever reason, when I clicked on Chrome, it would just open Hangouts. Nothing but Hangouts. 
and I, and I couldn't get out of Hangouts. And then I, I called Rakai over and I'm like, Rakai, you guys are so big on Chrome. Fix this nonsense. And he just looks at it and goes, I don't know. I've never seen that before. And so I couldn't, I couldn't get out of Hangouts. And so I was just stuck in Hangouts. And you know what the funny thing was? <laughs> that night... I had zero interest in hanging out, like not even a little bit. I didn't want to hang out with anyone. I just wanted to watch my my cockamamie Netflix. Yeah, That's it. Yeah, and I just wanted Chrome. No, here's what I don't understand. I mean, I, I that does sound like a horrible experience, Noah. And I apologize that you had experienced that on your first go around. Was horrible. But here's the thing. You have a 60-inch television in the very room with not only an Amazon Fire hooked up to it, but a Chromecast hooked up to it. Why the hell we didn't couldn't, we couldn't find the remotes? They're one of the remotes. And I, and here's the thing, had I known, had I known what, what a job it was going to be to open Chrome up on this computer, I probably would have taken more okay. time to find the remotes okay. at the time. I thought I was going to, I thought, I thought I was going to download the Deb and I thought I was going to click twice with my mouse and I was going to hit install and yeah. type in a password I mean, I'll give you that. and I would have Chrome. That's yeah. what I thought was going to happen. That does make sense. I really believed it. Yeah, I know. That does seem like that's how it should go. Uh, all I can say is uh, blame Ubuntu. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Rick High was quick to point that out. Yeah. <laughs> You know, you could also, did you download it directly from Google's website or did you get it through yep. the, okay. All right. No, I downloaded it. I just went to, okay. to, to, to Google. Okay. Actually, all what right. I did was I Googled Chrome. That's what I did. All right. Well, I got nothing for that then. If that's what you, I got. All right. Okay. Well, if you want to get all of our past uh, desktop app picks or spotlights, go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash last picks. And that has them all listed out there. You can grab it. And uh, I mention this from time to time, but in, in in my humble opinion, if you've just reloaded your rig or you just switched over to Linux, or if you're uh, sitting on Windows and you're kind of looking over the fence at the greener grass, take a look at that list and kind of get an idea of some really great applications. We've got a bar that we set before any of this stuff goes in. Now, this one is closest we get to kind of like, here you go, here's something to check out. And that's why you put it in the spotlight and not in the app pick. There is actually a difference there. And, uh, but that list at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash lastpicks has everything we've picked for a while. And it is really some of the all-stars of some of the desktop applications available on Linux. And there's some stuff that is just not available on the other platforms. All right, Noah, let's do the news. And this episode is brought to you by Ting.com. Go to last.ting.com. Ting is my mobile service provider and Noah's mobile service provider. It should be yours too because it's mobile that really does make sense. And I mean that. No contracts, no early termination fees, and you only pay for what you use. It is redonkulous. It starts at a flat $6 a month and it's just your usage on top of that. Now, here's how I make it work. Now, Noah really makes it work. And I, I, I kind of look like a noob compared to Noah, but. Here's how I make it work for the last two years. I got three lines on Ting, okay? It's a flat $6 for each line. What's up? That's not much, is it? And then it's just the usage on top of that. Well, guess what? Only two of the phones gets very heavy, heavy usage. That third phone that I have, very little usage. Very little. Everything's over Wi-Fi. That makes it extremely cheap for me to have that third line. Extremely cheap. My max bill is usually around $48 a month for three smartphones. I got an S6, an HTC One on there, and an iPhone. Now, the, uh, the S6 is mine. The iPhone goes out to, to somebody that works for Jupiter Broadcasting, and so does the HTC One. So I'm able to give them out to employees for like $6 a month. And because they're all really technically savvy, they're using Wi-Fi like pros too, and, and, and sometimes like the bill is as low as 30 bucks, 35 bucks a month. And then when we have a little extra, we on like, oh man, when we're setting up for conferences and stuff like that, I'm on the phone all the time doesn't matter at all. So then my bill goes up to like 50 bucks a month at the high end. 
You average that out over the year, and it is ridiculous. Over two-year period, like, you know, the length of an average contract, I'm saving over $2,000 a month. And you can find out how much you would save, too, by going to last.ting.com. Last.ting.com, it supports this show. It lets Ting know that you heard about it here. But it also gets you a $25 service credit or $25 off your first device. Here's why I mentioned the service credit thing, though. They have a GSM and CDMA network that you can choose from. So there is a very good chance that your device that you already own is going to work out of the box on Ting. That is very slick because then that $25 goes to your account balance. Now, when I first switched to Ting, it took me more than my first month to burn through that account balance, but it gets even better. If you're stuck in one of those horrible duopoly contracts right now that they're trying to kind of get away from, depending on like if you buy an iPhone through Apple Store, you can get one way without a contract, but it's it's really muddled. And if you get into financing, like it's essentially a two-year contract. Oh, no, they don't call it contracts anymore. They call it agreements. The hell is this? What? Yeah. It's ridiculous. I mean, they, 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 they make a point. They make a point to tell you. Uh, oh, sir, it's not a contract. Right, it's it, an agreement. It's not a contract. No. It's an agreement. Yes. Last.ting.com. No contracts, no early termination fee, and they have an ETF relief program. I want you to check them out right now. Also, while you're over there, just browse through the different Ting devices. They have a whole bunch of great devices now. They got all of the nice high-end Android devices, and man, oh man, oh man. They got the Nexus 5X, the Moto X Pure Edition, the Nexus 6P. So many nice devices over on Ting. And see, if you get like something like the Nexus 5, $379 directly from Ting, unlocked, no contract, you own the device, and you only pay for what you use. And it's the stock Google experience. And uh, just this week on TechSnap, in the roundup, we covered a story about how significantly more secure, statistically, the Nexus devices are than any other Android device. And now you can get one for $379, no contract, unlocked, pay for what you use. It's amazing. You want a hotspot, you turn it on. You want tethering, you just check the box. They don't limit any of that stuff. They have an incredible dashboard to manage all of it, and it's, com- it's paired with a great companion app for your phone. It's a really good service. Last.ting.com. Go check them out and see why I've been using them, and I think Noah, too, for well over two years. Yeah, the the thing is, I can't like I can't really take credit for the majority of the devices that are on my account because I've given them away to other people. Mm. Like, you know, I have like a bunch of family members that are on my account. You know, hold on a second. When you say that, oh, it sounds fancy, but when it's six dollars a month, exactly, exactly. And here's the thing: the my total bill is still less than my previous cell provider, and the only two people on my previous cell provider were me and my wife. And now I have me, my wife, my son, my mom, my dad, my aunt. Like I mean, I, you name a family member or a friend, and they're probably on my Ting account. And I still pay less a month than I did with just the two phones that we had with our previous cell provider. That's the that's the crazy difference. Yeah, over eighty percent of devices devices can come over to Ting now that they support GSM and CDMA networks. Go to last.ting.com. Go visit there and just check them out. That is just a nice way to support this show, keeping us going. And check out their savings calculator. Put your usage in there. And just kind of take a look at it. That lets Ting know that you care that they're supporting us, and it also gives you a chance to see what their service does offer, and maybe it's worth it. Last.ting.com, and a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the Linux Action Show. So I, I think it's a really good, I think it's a good companion advertiser for the type of audience that we have who's a little bit savvier and kind of realizes the existing setup's a bit of a scam. Also, if you're also a cord uh, cutter like I am, 
because I also hate the cable networks. Oh man, boy, something about I don't know. He, I almost I almost sound like I'm a, I got a little like Richard Stallman. Going I think on. that we should all make those businesses fail. But no, yeah. no, 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 not Ting. We don't want to make Ting. No, fail. no, no, but I'm bad, telling you, the bad, cable bad. networks like Comcast. Oh, I'm oh. looking at you, Comcast. Uh, yeah, Ugh. no, Ting has uh, a great post up right now about cutting the cord and watching the big networks for free with over the air. You guys probably know a lot about this, uh, but I actually found it to be pretty informative. And the part that was really useful for me was picking the right type of antenna. So that's nice. Go to last.ting.com, and they have that up on their blog if you want to check it out. Thanks, Ting, for sponsoring Linux Action Show. And also check out their uh, info about their fiber rollout. They are rolling out fiber internet in some areas, and they have some good posts on their blog about that. So the big story today, and we don't quite know the number for sure, but VentureBeat is reporting that Red Hat is buying Ansible for more than a hundred million dollars. You said that wrong, but that's cool. One hundred cool. million dollars. There, there we go. Okay, all right, we can continue now. Now, the reason why I don't know if I believe this number, and it probably is accurate because, I mean, who am I? This is VentureBeat. I'm sure I'm wrong. But here's what I don't quite understand about it, and this is how math works. So Red Hat says they're only going to take a $5 million write-down for this. Which means that maybe they're fan, maybe they're just paying ninety five million dollars in cash right now. I don't quite. Red Hat's in a pretty good position right now, and buying Ansible is a genius move. Uh, and it, uh, it so if those those of you are not familiar, Ansible is up and coming. Real, it's not even really up and coming anymore. I say up and coming because when we have gone to conferences over the last few years, I have been noticing a very significant transition from people using Puppet and Chef. To people mm -hmm. using Ansible, and this seems yep. to be a continue. Yeah, you you noticed that too. Absolutely. So yep. I think by Red Hat buying Ansible, which is one of the four major providers of open source DevOps tools, uh, it makes sense because it can add to Red Hat's line of offerings. Plus, Ansible already integrates really well with Red Hat's OpenShift, OpenStack, and Red Hat Enterprise products. It's written mostly in Python. Ansible's open source software has gained popularity, but the startup also offers premium tower software and consulting services. The software allows for dev developers, I was going to say DevOps again, but allows for developers to more easily set up and manage IT infrastructure for applications at scale. For instance, Ansible can speed up the rollout of OpenStack, which is a huge play for Red Hat. I, I love the idea that a company like Red Hat that already has a huge um, server infrastructure and server software infrastructure, rather, is going to, is not only going to buy this company, but likely there's going to be a lot of good integration here, right? And so if that integration comes off the bat, so now I can have just my Red Hat server and have Ansible setting a lot of that stuff up, that seems like that's a huge advantage, uh, you know, for for Red Hat as as compared to its well, competition. And, and so does that influence you? Uh, so as a decision maker, as somebody who's like, okay, this is what we're going to deploy for centralized management and deployment. Uh, if Red Hat owns Ansible, does that make it more likely for that to be the solution that you would deploy of, you know, Noah at AltaSpeed? Well, I mean, in, in in being perfectly honest with you, we would end up deploying CentOS because it's what I'm comfortable supporting. Yeah, to but begin I would with. assume if this can manage Red Hat, it's going to be able to manage CentOS, which that's also well, owned well, by course, Red Hat right. now. Okay, right, right. But I guess what I mean is because because I'm so heavily invested in in uh, Red Hat's infrastructure, we would deploy Red Hat slash CentOS regardless of the Ansible being a side part. However, it does make it easier for me to sell this to an to a client or to an end user by saying, "Hey, listen, not only can you not only do you have, can you buy the server operating system, but the the management utility um, to provision a lot of this stuff 
is going to be very tightly integrated uh, because it's owned by the same company. I mean, that's that's always mm-hmm. a better. I mean, I feel like that's always going to be a better solution than trying to yeah. piece two pieces together, even though I'll be the first to acknowledge that goes against the very fiber of, of Linux. Right. Well, So let me tell you who I think the elephant in the room is right now. Uh, when you hear this, it's Juju. Right. Because what what is a key component to canonical server strategy? Juju. And so uh, Juju is a uh, software orchestration management layer, if you will, that manages and deploys software on Ubuntu servers. And uh, this Ansible is a competitor with that. However, I think Red Hat is watching Canonical take off on the cloud and going, a key part to their success right now is the fact that they have a baked-in management solution that is owned in-house, developed in-house, for yep. the most successful EC2 platform or the most mm-hmm. successful platform on Dropbox or the most successful platform on Rackspace or one of the most popular Linux distributions on Azure. And they're looking at that and going, boy, one of the really amazing things is if I'm a Juju user, I can orchestrate and manage software across all of these different cloud hosting platforms from one central interface. And not that you can't do it today with, with Red Hat, but you're going right. to roll it yourself with something like Puppet, something like Chef or something like Ansible. Where if you have Ubuntu, Juju, you could also manage you could also manage Ubuntu with Puppet or Chef, no problem, obviously, or Ansible, yep. obviously. But Juju is it's a really uniquely designed system with these charms, where it's a drag and drop solution. And I think a lot of people are looking at it going, if I'm going to be a serious platform contender here, I've got to offer something like that as well. And that's where Red Hat jumped in. And so what struck me about this too is when I hear about big changes like this, I think, well, how's it going to impact the people? How is it going to impact the community? How is it going to impact the people that are contributing to open source? And oh, I that's feel going to get better. I feel a lot better, right? When it's Red Hat, I actually feel kind of good about it. And I got a little details over here from Fortune's article. Fortune says that 50 people from Ansible, 50 Ansible employees will be joining Red Hat, uh, which will they'll, they'll be absorbed into the Red Hat enterprise, which really isn't all that surprising because Ansible was founded by former Red Hat veterans. <laughs> so isn't that kind of funny? You know, but th- th- this is a typical Red Hat move, I think. This is a typical Red Hat move for Red Hat to come in and say, who do we think makes a really high-end quality software that's already solving the problem that we want to solve? And then let's simply acquire that and let it run. My my guess is, and I don't have any facts to ba- back this up with, but my guess is, uh, looking at the way that Red Hat usually does things, they won't make a whole lot of tweaks to Ansible. They'll make some tweaks on the... On the um, you know, on the business management side, but as far as the actual software project, they will probably let those the those mm. developers and project leads continue to develop Ansible the way that they had been doing. Yeah, that makes um, sense. And then they'll simply tie that into Red Hat. And that's one of the reasons I think that both you and I have such a great respect for Red Hat, the company, because, uh, you know, because of those kinds of decisions. Well, the track record, the history of it, it speaks pretty well. Uh, and, yeah. and, but it's one that still, Ansible is... Um, is a really big deal. And so for Red Hat to move into this, because Ansible isn't just a Red Hat thing, you know, and so this is, I'd be curious to see how great the Debian system support remains, how great the Ubuntu system support remains. Let's, I'm, 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 I'm thinking this is a good acquisition, not like log me in buying LastPass, not a good acquisition. I'm thinking this one is a good one, but I, I got just a little bit of skeptical pants on, and I'm like, I'm going to just wear these pants for a little bit. Yes, they're pajama pants, and they're super comfortable, and they're easy to wear, but I'm just going to wear them for a little bit and just see how things play out. But I, if I'm going to make a Red Book prediction for this show, 
I'm going to say successful. You you wear your pajama comfortable pants. I'll be fully happy to put on the the uh, the nice looking tight fitting suit pants because <laughs> uh, because if 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 you reverse this, you look at this from 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 the other way around. If Red Hat had bought LastPass, I would have been thrilled. I think that would have been a really 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 positive move for LastPass. Basically, for the most part, until Red Hat does something that that really rubs me the wrong way. It seems like every t- every time I interact with somebody from Red Hat, every time I talk to somebody from Red Hat, every time I look at the, the direction that Red Hat is going, they put for and foremost the interests of free and open source at the very top, and then everything else falls underneath it. So if Ansible got absorbed by by Red Hat, I'd say that's a good. I think I think that's a win for everyone all the way around. All right, so let's shift gears because what's something that we have always said? Boy, wouldn't it be great if you could have Photoshop under Linux? And then we've often talked about well. Adobe's never really going to port Photoshop to Linux, and we'd have to wait for some web version maybe to be created. How could you really edit large photos up in the cloud? Is that really doable? Can you really run full applications in your web browser? The answer to that is yes, but it's the Linux apps that are here already. Check this out. This is rollapp.com, and I just discovered this this week, so it's news to me. And it is a way to run X11 applications up in your web browser. And I'm going to just do it right now. So I got GIMP, but they have a bunch of other ones you could also run, uh, like uh, like OpenSCAD, uh, uh, Panita, LibreOffice Draw, LibreOffice itself. Anyways, but GIMP to me seems like the ultimate demo. I'm going to launch it, and I'm going to say just do a test drive. And if you watch, it's, it'll, it'll say GIMP is now starting up, and it waits. And then look, there's the GIMP loading screen like you would get if you're loading on your desktop, loading, and then wait another second, another window opens up, and there's the GIMP photo editor. Look at this. This is GIMP itself in my web browser. Each window, each X window, launches a new web window. So you have to turn off pop-up blocking on some browsers. Mm -hmm. But this is legitimately taking X11 applications and putting it in your web browser. And and what, what struck me about this, Noah, I can be on any web browser. Well, I only tried it on Chrome and Firefox, but I can be on a web yeah. browser and actually freaking use full freaking fledged desktop applications, not desktop applications like Google Docs that have been created for right. the web with tons of compromises, but yeah. real, true, genuine desktop applications in my web browser. Take that Chromebook. And you can do that at native speeds. Yeah, it's pretty good. I would say my local system would run a little bit faster, but you know what? It's pretty it's dang fast. Workable compromise. Have you heard of Altio? No. What is that? So Altio is kind of does the same thing, except you are responsible for providing the backend. So essentially, what Altio is, U L T E O, it is a it's an application server, and what you can do is you can essentially sign you essentially build like a Windows box um, and install Windows applications, yeah. and you can run those applications inside the web. It's kind of the same thing. But I think that the overall, rather you're using LTO or you're using Rollapp, I think the overall, uh, the overall message here is the fact that as things become continue to be, continue to become so web centric, eventually we might just have the ability to use first class apps on Linux, if only because the developers will want to limit their their workflow, and so they'll develop one time. And then let everyone on Mac, everyone on Windows, everyone in a Chrome box, whatever it is you're using to access the Internet, you can use that to run Photoshop and, and, and Premiere and whatever else. Sure. And for those of you who are wondering, as you probably guessed, uh, it is using an application virtualization platform, which allows them to run any application on any device. 
with just a web browser. When using Roll app, applications behave the same way as if they were locally installed. Compatibility is not an issue, they say. Open any file anytime. All necessary apps are instantly available in the cloud and run heavy workloads from mobile devices. Now, that's interesting. Like, you know, maybe a nice Android tablet or something like that. Mm-hmm. Anyways, I just thought this was an interesting technology demo, and I wanted to point it out to people. It's not free either. Like, you can totally try it out for free. It, but it, they have some pricing plans too, which would make sense. You would want them to stick around if it's something you're actually relying on. Isn't uh, isn't isn't the isn't the occasional use thing free indefinitely? It's yeah. not like a trial though, yeah. right? It just they yep. they limit yep. some of the features aren't there. Yeah, and uh, you can open files from Google Drive and Dropbox and things like that for free. Yeah, so it's still it's not bad. I wonder I wonder how the more complicated like a GIMP seems pretty straightforward. I wonder how things like Audacity. That have to tie into yeah, like, like the devices. different sound cards. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I wonder how stuff like that works. It looks like they have it available. I wonder. I wonder if it just depends on like WebRTC support or how the you know some of the stuff in the browser. I didn't play with any of that because I w- I thought GIMP was a pretty interesting tech demo. Yeah. Um, and you could even use it like if you didn't want to even install GIMP all the time. Or imagine this: maybe you're on a Plasma Five desktop using mm-hmm. all Qt stuff, and you don't want to install GIMP, but you need to use GIMP for a couple of things. That's not so bad, is it? I I think I think that the I think that the you know the immediate um, need that this fulfills maybe isn't so exciting because I will just yeah. in, honestly I'll just yeah. install GIMP. No, if it's I the need tech. GIMP. It's the tech of it. Exactly. And, yeah. And right. I think I suspect, I suspect, but I don't know for sure because their 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 about us page is very limited on technical details. But I suspect it's something uniquely specific to X11 that makes this possible, which is kind of neat. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason why I think that's kind of neat is because kind of like. Screw you, Windows users. You can't even do this. Bah. All right. So uh, I wanted to mention Proxmox version 4.0 is out. 4.0 is out. Version Proxmox VE version 4.0 is out because, well, honestly, since we covered Proxmox on the show, we've seen a huge adoption in our in our uh, audience. And so I thought maybe you guys would like to know. New versions out based on Debian Jesse 8.2, and it's rocking the Linux kernel 4.2. It supports Linux containers, the LXC variety, IPv6 support. Hey, oh, that's a big one for a lot of you, and Fast completion for some of the commands, which just makes it a little bit easier. Plus, a nice new Proxmox VE HA manager. Hey, yo. And they've also got a, uh, I hate to be critical, but a super lame video demo, which is too bad, too, because they they point people to it. They say, for best quality, watch the video in full screen mode. And I'm going to just play a little bit for you. Let's create a Debian Jesse container. Select oh, the host. Choose the host name. Set root password and confirm it. I'm just saying this is not an awesome way to introduce people to your product. Well, so. it would be great actually. This, you know what this would be good for though. At night when I want to fall asleep, <laughs> I could. That would actually that'd be actually fantastic. I'm I just saying to, to the Proxmox. The here's what I'm saying, no, to the Proxmox people. Just call me. And I'll, I'll do it. I love your product. I'll hook you up, bro. Yeah, I'll, I'll hook just, you up. I'll just do it because I love you guys. Consider my contribution to the project. I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'm just saying uh, we could do a better job of that. All right. So uh, this is really, right now, this is the big Linux news of the week. We saved it for the end. Yeah. The Steam machines are getting their reviews. The uh, units are shipping tonight. I should be receiving my Steam controller. I'm super excited about it because I'm going to get to play with it for the week and then give you a review uh, you know, I'll just cover it as a news item or something next week. But the first reviews for the new Steam machines are hitting the web. Engadget, ours, and others have theirs up right now. Let's start with Engadget's uh, review. They got the Alienware Steam machine. And 
Um, it's a small-looking little box. It's It looks like it's about maybe double the size of a NUC, if that. I mean, it's really quite small. And, uh, and Gadget has a massive, massive write-up about it. And it is impressively positive. Impressively positive, actually. Uh, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll read sort of the conclusion, not to spoil it for you. Sorry about the spoilers, but uh, it's a really nice write-up, so I, I hate to spoil it for you. But I thought maybe the punchline was worth it. Look at all this stuff. They even cracked open the case and uh, showed the insides, how nicely designed it is. It is a good-looking rig here. But uh, in conclusion, uh, he said, I used to laugh when I saw Linux users scramble to build compatibility layers to play real PC games. I chuckled when Valve CEO Gabe Newell lambasted Windows 8 as a catastrophe for everyone, saying that Linux and SteamOS were viable alternatives. It seems so far-fetched, so silly. Truth be told, I'm still laughing. But now it's because I'm enjoying myself. The Alienware Steam Machine has some growing pains, but it's fun. A lot of fun. The first commercial Steam Machine isn't quite idiot-proof console just yet, but it's really close. In fact, it's close enough I'm thinking about recommending to friends hesitant to step into PC gaming. It's fun, it's easy to use, the issues it has are minor and simple to troubleshoot. It still needs some major patches and some great game support, but Valve seems dedicated to providing the, that support. I'm looking forward to seeing how the company updates SteamOS before its official November 10th launch. 10th launch. Be sure to check out back and check back here. Between then, I plan to update with features as they roll out. And Ars Technica also has a review up, saying the Steam's living room hardware blitz gets off to a muddy start. They put Valve's new OS controller and Steam box to the test. They had a lot to say about it. A lot of people are saying big picture mode is working better and more polished than in earlier builds. They say overall, there's some kinks, but it's very smooth. There were a few sticking points that seemed a little rough compared to maybe other game consoles. The system hasn't really frozen on them during any games yet, but there has been a handful of times where the whole OS hung when we were trying to close an opening title. We're crying a system reboot that took about 30 to 60 seconds. We ran into occasional problems with web page scrolling, which to me seems like a super minor problem. The on-screen keyboard every now and then. And Wi-Fi recognition as well, which disappeared with a reboot. We found a few SteamOS games that still included intermediary launcher screens, like Trine, where you have to set the resolution. And that was only annoyance because these screens can't be navigated with a Steam controller. You have to plug in a mouse and keyboard to get through that kind of thing, which Linux developers need to stop doing that. While SteamOS interface includes large warnings that these games require extra hardware, Valve isn't directly responsible for third-party developers' unfriendly decisions. It still seems like an oversight, though, to have such a game unplayable out of the box. But a lot of people know, and this is what really struck me, mm -hmm. are impressed with the library of available games. Over a thousand games are saying, this thing has a ton of games, is some of the reviews. Some people are saying the new Steam controller works really well, way better than any of the prototypes and feel, and some people are saying it's not quite there yet. I, I'm going to wait and we'll see. I'll, I'll give it my opinion after that, but... Uh, Looks kind of nice. I think it's kind of lame that the Steam machine gets compared to modern game consoles. Microsoft has had three iterations, four iterations or whatever it's been. I don't know well, how, what Xbox is up now. They've had three or four iterations to get their game console perfected. And things like the, the PlayStation, they've had 20 years to perfect their game console. Valve is essentially essentially created a, a game, a, a, a game console from scratch and they've done it in in what two or three years so if there's just a couple of kinks i'd say they've 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 exceeded 
like well beyond what would be any realistic expectation. And remember, the official launch isn't even until November 10th. And when I talk to people, uh, particularly people that are uh, that are council gamers, I ask them because there's no incentive for me to switch a council gamer to the Valve. I don't really care if they're using an Xbox or or a Steam machine. It's that that's not where I'm trying to convince people to use Linux. But out of curiosity, I've asked people that are really heavy into the into the game council. Would you be interested in the Steam machine? And surprisingly, a lot of people haven't even heard of it. A lot of the Xbox players, a lot of the PlayStation, they have no idea. And then when I explain it, they go. Oh, that sounds amazing. So I yeah. can buy the game once and I can play it on my console and on my computer. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I think that's because it's not a ready it's not a product that's ready yet. So I don't right. think they've really put much effort behind that. But I wouldn't discount the amount of attention featuring these products in the Steam Store will generate. The Steam Store has more users than Xbox Live or PlayStation Network does. I mean, it is a much larger user base. And yeah. uh, I think who this is for is not your Xbox gamer or your PlayStation gamer. It is your PC gamer who is looking for something in the living room that wants to share it with the family or share it with friends or, or, or wants that near console experience for PC games. And I think after the first couple of iterations, the user is a type of person who's never even heard of Linux, doesn't even know that this thing runs SteamOS. Now, another component of this also is Steam Link, which allows you to stream Windows games and other games to the Steam console. Um, and I don't, I don't have a lot of experience with that yet either, but I, if I recall correctly, I pre-ordered the Steam controller and a Steam Link. So I'll have a chance to review that for you guys. I respectfully disagree with you. Um, and I say that because most of the... Okay, so let's start with my disclaimer. First of all, I'm not a gamer, and the chat room has clearly caught on to that. But I, I disagree with you in that I think that the people, the kind of people that I know that play, that are really heavy into gaming, probably 50% or better of the fun for them is building the box to begin with and handpicking out the parts that go into that box. And I feel like the people that are going to just buy a pre-built gaming box, <clears throat> particularly one that has a controller in it, because again, most of the people that PC game want a keyboard and mouse, they don't want a controller. I feel like the people that are going to buy a pre-built box with a controller to put in the living room are the people that are console gamers and they just want access to the game library in Steam. Here's my thinking, and I could be totally wrong, so I'm not trying to make this like a prediction, but this is my trying to get my head where where maybe Valve is at. I think this thing can be successful if 20% of the Steam user base buys it. So they mm-hmm. don't even you, see it doesn't you're not you're not trying to convert Xbox players and PlayStation players. Because those people are not as serious of gamers. They're, they're a few notches above a tablet gamer. And I don't mean to be insulting, but let's be honest. The PC is yeah. a way better gaming platform if you're actually a serious gamer and you want to shoot people in the face. Just saying. Uh-huh. PC Master Race. Now, if you are a Steam player, and there's millions of them, like millions and millions and millions and millions, like a Steam user base. Guys, does anybody have any stats on that in the chat room for us? But... Yeah, if you go to store.steampower.com slash stats, Steam actually publishes the stats for the last 48 hours in real time, and they mm-hmm. currently have 6 million players. They peaked at 9 million players. Active, Noah. Not like when Sony mentions, oh, we have 13 million users. Of course, yeah, only 100,000 of them actually are active. Right. 9. Uh, 9.35 million users. Um, if you could sell to a portion of the Steam user base, mm-hmm. you'd be doing pretty, pretty rock solid. And if you look at the top games, Counter-Strike, mm-hmm. Dota 2, Team Fortress 2, Civilization, 
Gary's Mod. Those are all the top games on Steam, mm -hmm. all available on SteamOS and the Linux platform. And you think the reason that they would go to a council is for uh, is just for cleanliness in the living room, that kind of thing? I think it's a matter of uh, getting sick and tired of the PC upgrade rat race, getting sick and tired of frickin' Windows. I think there's a component of Windows exhaustion in this. Uh, I think it's a matter... So these are these are a couple of attributes that uh -huh, might uh -huh. lend somebody to buy a Steam uh, OS machine. And then last but not least, I think it's the family man or family woman who uh, maybe their child or kids are coming up to an age where they want a game and now it's becoming more of a social family thing. If you look uh -huh. at the median age of gamers, a lot of them are becoming parents now. You know, they're people that grew up with video games. They're becoming parents. They have kids. They have a wife or they have a husband and they want to bring them in in the experience and they want something the whole family can share. Here's yeah. all of the games dad or mom plays all the time and now it's available on the television. So what you're saying is what you're saying is perhaps you have a son that really likes playing Counter-Strike and dad really likes playing Counter-Strike but maybe you're in two opposite ends of the house right. and you could bring that together. Yeah. I can personally relate. Yeah. Exactly. And I so I think maybe there is some logic to it and here's the best part is if you're just going after the hardcore Steam users from Valve's perspective, they can afford a couple of years to work out some of the kinks because initially it's yep. their most it's their most hardcore, most passionate, and most technical users. And 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 the way they're being humble with the rollout, like when they're sending out the press machines and stuff, they're like, mm -hmm. "Listen, this is a two-way communication. We're going to be giving you patches as you review the unit. We're still making tons of changes, and even after November 10th, we're going to make more changes. This is a dialogue. This is not a this is not a boom." From 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 heaven, a product has dropped out of the cloud, and now you are you are ready to go. It is a continuing, evolving thing. And I'll, the the number one complaints, and this is what really has me excited, Noah, is that uh -huh. all of the number one complaints from ours and Engadget and the other reviews that I kind of did a meta read over, the number one complaints are like on-screen keyboard issues, or a game locks up and they have to reboot, or they had an issue with Wi-Fi. Yeah, all of that. All of that, Valve could probably fix in the next one or two updates. Right, and that's assuming, and that's assuming that people don't just change the way they're using. It. I mean, honestly, who's gaming over Wi-Fi? <laughs> and, 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 and or 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 who is browsing the internet on your gaming? Yeah, that's box? dumb. I, I just, that's dumb. I don't get it. Like now, here's the here's the the one thing I will say as as the chat room continues to remind me, and as I've never made any bones about, I don't really game. I play Counter Strike 1.6 because it's fun, and you thankfully or unthankfully rather have gotten me addicted to Race the Sun, so that's a time suck for me. But past that, I don't really game. However. I will buy. I'll be one of the first people to buy a Steam box. One is because I want to support the fact that it's on Linux, but two, I would. I'm really interested in playing with the media aspect of this. If I could have one box, you know, in the living room or in the in the in the downstairs family room, whatever it is that ha that I primarily use to to watch my local media, but then in addition, I can play some games. That would be worth a couple hundred bucks to me, right there. I agree, and I appreciate the fact, according to the reviews, and I haven't gotten my hand on one yet, but according to the reviews. If you dig down deep enough into the system menus, like you really dig deep in big picture mode, you can mm -hmm. drop down to, to a traditional Linux X11 desktop. I would not like that. No, no, no. I'm glad it's there. but Right. So here's my point. You wouldn't, I mean, you really have to dig to get to it as a user. So it's not something mm -hmm. you just accidentally get to. And what that to me means is they're not trying to prevent you from installing MB or Plex. Or oh, okay. Kodi, right? You, uh -huh. could, you could load any of those, or Chrome and watch Netflix. Like... All of that is right there and just, you know, a few menu structures away and you can have at it and hack the system. And we know it's based on Debian, right? So 
for me, the potential down a year from now is huge. I'm, I mean, I'm hoping, I'm picturing a SteamOS machine with MB installed on it and a Netflix, and a Netflix, and God, if I could really have everything I want, a Blu-ray player too would be really nice. Not, not needed. I, 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 I can work around that, but gosh, that'd be sweet. It would really be a unique media experience if I could load Plex and MB and have Netflix and then play my Steam games. Mm-hmm. That would be worth quite a bit of money for me personally. And one machine to do it all, especially in the Rover, is very, very worth it. I'm totally with you except for the Blu-ray. I, I have such a disdain for optical media that uh, yeah, I agree. I I, I, just, I would I actively don't want Blu-ray. <laughs> I uh, well, I the only reason I'd really want Blu-ray is so I can use Make MKV to get it out of Blu-ray. But that's another <laughs> okay. story. All right. Okay. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Uh, so I'll give you guys my report when I get my hardware in here. I'm looking forward to trying it out. First thing I'm going to do, race the sun. Second thing I'm going to do is a first-person shooter with that controller and just see what it's like. I'm a little skeptical still. Yeah. Me you know, too. and and I gotta say, some of the reviews have been mixed on the controller. Some have loved it. Some have hated it, but the one thing I do want to point out is the thing has rock-solid uh, Xbox 360 support, and, mm-hmm. and this is what struck me about the reviews. They're like, it's not as good as the Xbox controller, or they would say, not as good as traditional console controllers, and my is thought it? was, then plug in the console controller. That's exactly. what's great about the Steam machine, is you can just plug it in. Like, uh, Anyways, uh, I'm looking forward to trying it out, and uh, I have a feeling down the road I'll either build, build my own SteamOS machine... Or I might try picking up one of these, and then we'll have a review. Probably sounds like from both of us on the Linux Action Show. All right, Noah, that's all the news for this week. It is time to share our journey and our picks to replace LastPass. This has been a week that has driven me to wear pajamas, and I'm not kidding. This was stressful, hard, and at moments I thought maybe not doable. I'm going to tell you about where we landed. I think both Noah and I came up with two different solutions. Plus, we're going to cover a bunch of other really great alternatives, depending on your use case, that might work super well for you. But before we get into that, i got to thank our segment sponsor. That's System76, creators of machines born to run Linux. They ship them with Ubuntu out of the box. Everything works. Everything has been handpicked to make sure it works great. They build these desktop systems right here in the U.S. of A., and they service them in the U.S. of A., too. Laptops included. System76.com. Go check them out. A great place to get a machine to run Linux. And you might have heard they have a super fan contest going on right now for their Skylake product launch. I'm really excited about this personally. At System76, we figuratively love our customers to death. You, our devoted fans, give us a reason to wake up every morning. So we've decided to celebrate your devotion with a contest. And because we like competitions and superlatives, we're pitting you all against each other in a social media free-for-all to find the System76 superfan who will be flying to Denver, Colorado to meet us at our headquarters downtown. You get to hang out with the team. Our office is super chill. Three, two, one! You get to hang out with the team. Our office is super chill and super friendly. You get to hang out with the team. Our office is super chill and super friendly, and we can't wait to have you here. How fun are we? So fun. Damn right we are. You'll even get to check out our entire line of current desktops, laptops, and servers, now equipped with Intel's totally legit Skylake processors. Hey, Batman. 
Here's how to enter. Share why you think you should win a trip to System76 headquarters on our Facebook, Twitter, or Google Plus pages, and tag it with hashtag System76Fan. Feel free to share as many unique submissions as you like, which may include, but are not limited to, the following. A tweet or Facebook post, a product review, a new internet meme, a stop motion film, a t-shirt design, a fake commercial, a real commercial, a black and white photo series, a historical reenactment, a depiction of the System 76 logo fighting the logo in a cage match. The possibilities <laughs> are endless. The only rules are to use your imagination and submit them by midnight Mountain Standard Time on October 18th, 2015. Also be 18 or older and a US resident. <laughs> and a few other things. This is good. Glitter! Glitter everywhere! Glitter all the things! Enter now. System76.com slash superfan. I love it. You can find out more at System76.com. Get yourself a rig built to run Linux. Stop fighting with your hardware. You get to play with your Linux and tell them the Linux Action Show sent you. And I'm just saying, it might be worth entering that superfan contest. Even if you don't think you have a shot of winning... It might be worth entering. There could be two reasons to go to System76 offices that are not in that video. I'm not saying any more than that at this point, Noah, but I think you know what I'm talking about. It, you're saying that it could involve men with uh, talking into their sleeves I'm, and uh, I'm just ushering say, around very important people? I'm just saying there could be people there that, are, that maybe you're familiar with if you've been listening to Linux Action Show for a while at the System76 right. offices for the Superfan right. contest. That could important be. Important people. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm not going to brag, but. Uh, I'm not saying that. Yeah. No, yeah. of course. Have you gotten Have you gotten word if, if we're allowed to participate in this? Because I got to tell you, I, I have a hankering to, uh, not that I necessarily have a whole lot of extra time, but I have a hankering to enter this contest. Dude, dude, dude. No, we cannot enter the contest. Well, I didn't think so, but I just thought I'd ask. <laughs> Dude, we're going to be there for the contest revel. I, what, oh, what? oh, you ruined oh, it. You oh, ruined geez. it. There you go. Oh, you just God. outed yourself. All right. So let's talk about uh, the fact that LastPass has joined the LogBN family in a big effing hug. Uh, and uh, I got a chance to, uh, I did sit down before this episode and watch the uh, LastPass or I'm sorry. Yes, actually, the LastPass CEO get logged in by <laughs> get logged in by uh, Leo Laporte and uh, Steve Gibson, and mm -hmm. uh, I walked away from that interview with way less confidence than I went into that interview, and it it sealed my decision to make this switch. So LastPass has joined LogMeIn, and I have been a, a pretty big LastPass proponent. How long have you been a LastPass user? No, I didn't even ask you beforehand, but uh, I begrudgingly started using LastPass after everyone like. Not last year, but the year, well, I think it was the year before, started making fun of me for not having a uh, a, a password manager at, at uh, Linux Fest. Yeah. Maybe it was, maybe it was, maybe it was uh, Ohio. At one of the Linux Fest, though, everyone was making fun of me. Oh, no, it doesn't have a password manager. Oh, you should just get on board. And, and of course, I just, I, I just, I was like, all right, well, here's the thing. I'll use a password manager, but I will keep track of my passwords outside of it. So if anything ever happens, I have documentation. Well... You ever have good intentions and start with something and then you make a mistake sure. and decide screw it because it's inconvenient? Well, ever, to me. Hey, let me ask you this, Noah. Have you ever uh, made a decision because it was kind of convenient and it helped you walk that security line and mm -hmm. then and then made a video about it on December 2nd, 2011 and published it on the web for 6,000 people episode to watch. of an in-depth look, you'll only have to remember one password for the rest of your life. 
I've uh, I've released entire videos dedicated to LastPass and exp and going on and on about how great LastPass is. Probably already know passwords suck. I mean, they have to be long and complex, and that makes them hard to remember. Plus, if you're being a good little boy or girl, you also should use a different password on every website you use. And that is a pain in the butt because just about every service out there requires a login. And if one website's password database is hacked and leaked online, if you use that password anywhere else, those other sites are essentially leaked online as well. So I was I was a big LastPass advocate, you might say. I see that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, in 2011, I just you, you you took the breath right out of me. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, and uh, I I feel pretty embarrassed now because here I am scrambling to switch switch away from LastPass. Uh, I have never gotten over the fact that LogMeIn uh, canceled and killed Hamachi. Eh, be it what it is, it made me realize that the real problem I have with these types of services isn't the mythical they might shut down and go away, isn't the maybe my information is going to get leaked because LastPass, I was pretty confident in how they secured the data. I can't believe this didn't hit me before, but it is them getting sold. That is the big problem with all of these proprietary commercial services, be it Plex, be it LastPass, be it any of the other ones, they can get sold. And that is the unpredictable element because you never know who they're going to get sold to and where the direction of the product might go once the sale is complete or maybe a year down the road. And with that in mind, I think we both came to the conclusion it's definitely time to replace LastPass. And I went down a journey of trying to consider what it was that I truly genuinely needed from a password manager. And for me, it was something that worked across multiple machines, something that was very straightforward and easy to get the data out of, and something that ideally, if all hell went to just, if everything just completely went to hell, if all the stuff that I was using completely fell apart, there was a, an accessible data format that I could get at, that I could use and still read it, regardless of any program being installed, this is, for example, just a total tangent, but this is why I like backing up with TAR. Because the last thing I want when I'm trying to restore my system after a massive data loss is worrying about installing the backup software, worrying about configuring the backup software, registering the backup software, and then restoring the data. Every machine has TAR. I can immediately start restoring from a TAR ball. I needed something that regardless of what machine was on, what machine I was on, as long as I had my standard tool set that I put on any machine I'm working on, I could get access to my passwords. And I wanted something that was under my control, that I controlled the server end and the client end. And for mm -hmm. me, that was my base minimum requirements for anything that was going to get me to switch from the convenience of LastPass. And that, once you put all of that, and it's something I need on Android, something I need on iOS, something I need on Firefox, something I need on Chrome, something I need on Linux, once you put all that together, it's a limited set of actual usable software solutions out there. Mm -hmm. It was not easy, Noah. It was not easy to pick. And I'm kind of curious um, where you ended up because I think we ended up in two different places. And I'm kind of curious what the journey was like for you and if there was moments where you considered just not switching at all. So uh, that was the I, – I started by saying, well, this isn't going to be a big deal because I know that I've been keeping track of my passwords outside of LastPass just in case – as it turned out, Chris, I had like less than 10% of them. Whoa. And the rest of, yeah, and the rest of them were all tied up in LastPass. And so the first thing was, I didn't know exactly how much time I had because I have gotten bitten by LogMeIn123. I don't have a single nice thing to say about them. I can't even pretend to say nice things about LogMeIn. And uh, so I wanted to be done at, in one night. 
and not there were other mitigating factors like we had the show to do and I had set aside a night to migrate myself off of LastPass. And so I started looking at the accounts that were tied that the only place that those passwords existed were were in LastPass. And essentially I'd log into each one of those accounts and I would change the password and then I would document the the password that I've changed it so that I could I move off that account. Now a lot of people tried to export out of LastPass directly into another password manager. I was not comfortable doing that for a number Interesting. of reasons. Interesting. You know what? Can I interrupt just for a second? Please. Uh, you know, it's, I just want to say, a lot of the things I looked into, the first thing I looked into is, did they have a LastPass migration script or tool, right? Mm-hmm. Or import? Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, I also just opted not to import and start new and just start rebuilding my password database with new passwords, clean and simple. I kind of think you and I... We both decided to go that route. Well, and here's here's the big problem I was facing is I have certain passwords for certain accounts that are tied to email accounts I no longer have access to because yeah. of varying contracting jobs that they gave me a, a thing to log in for a certain. But I still need access to that stuff. But it rules out the option of a password reset. So I couldn't take the gamble that if something didn't import right or something was screwed up that uh, I would be locked out. So I, I every one of my accounts and that took, Chris, hours hours it yeah. took me six hours to do all, to get all, uh, off all of all of LastPass. i'm not even sure i'm done yet i mean it's about what i would say it took me i would say it took me about seven and a half hours from what i was kind of keeping track and i'm not mm-hmm. totally sure because i accidentally had some stuff in chrome's password database mm-hmm. and some stuff in LastPass, and i didn't get all the stuff out of chrome i i actually i deleted them out of LastPass as i changed them so basically oh. when my LastPass vault was empty i knew i was done and it, it also it eliminated the things of forgetting anything because either here's what's happened. Either I have successfully migrated myself off of LastPass or I've permanently locked myself out of certain accounts. But there is no in between. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, so so uh, so after I got myself off of LastPass, then the search began to integrate into a new password manager. Now, you went through your specifications. Here were mine. I wanted something that was also easy to migrate in and out of so that if I ever face this again, um, I'm Good I'm not point. caught yes. you know caught with my pants right, down. Right, yeah. I I wanted something that is that is open source or at least it, 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 my bare minimum was it had to run on Linux. I would uh, preferred something that was free and open source and preferred something that was um you know that was Libra respecting. I needed something that would sync across multiple machines and I wanted something that supports two-factor authentication. And when I say two-factor authentication, I don't want that two-factor authentication to, to be a service of some sort. I would rather have it be something like the YubiKey that's yes. a hardware thing yes. that I own that I don't have to worry about. Yes. And so I think both of us tried KeePass, right? Yeah, yeah. What did you think of KeePass? So for me, the issue with KeePass was really the fact that KeePass 2 is really where I think I want to go, but it's in alpha, I believe, when I, or beta or alpha right now. Mm-hmm. Way, and I'm just, I'm not, I'm not prepared to move from something like LastPass to a beta or alpha product. Uh, and KeePass, I guess version one is what you would call it, or just KeePass, is not where I want it to be. It does not feel like a native Linux application to me. I found the browser plugins to be less than reliable. And and honestly, I don't know if I did something wrong, but I found the import process to import all of my LastPass stuff into a wrong category. It was a, For me, it was every step along the way a bad experience. And I want to make a caveat with that because I... I really want to keep pass to work because as far as wide adoption goes, as far as open source password managers that have a lot of clients and a lot of adoption and a lot of user base, KeePass seems to be it. Like if you're going to make a number one competitor to LastPass right now, mm-hmm. it appears KeePass is at that level. And so that was an obvious first spot for me to start. KeePass right. was a just no brainer. 
And uh, I found myself to be extremely underwhelmed with KeePass. And I'm kind of curious to know mm-hmm. if, if you found it to be lacking or not, because sometimes you and I look at these things in totally different lights. But for me, yeah. I found it to be, I, I, to be honest with you, Noah, I, I almost would rather just do a GPG encrypted text file than use yep. KeePass. I'm right there with you. And and I I just found it to be cumbersome. In order to get it to so let's start let's just let's walk through this. So to start, I have to enter all of the passwords in a separate application. Right there and that right there is irritating to me. I also had problems with the plugins. It started putting the password it googled one of my passwords. But and that really made me mad because had somebody been standing behind me or I mean best case scenario Google now has that password because it's forever saved in my Google search history. But if if somebody had been standing behind me or seen that, that would have been irritating. And the the browser plugin was just it was just a total waste of time, total uh, total pain. KeePass had the ability to do uh, where a certain keystroke would would try to fill in the password. Mm-hmm, but again, I'm mm-hmm. opening one application and then I'm opening back into my web browser. And I'm putting in my my mouse into the field and then I'm pushing this keystroke. And half the time that worked and sometimes it didn't. And that was just a pain. And I I arrived at the and then and that's actually using it. But then I have to store this database file. Now, I could store it on my encrypted thumb drive uh, key, uh, USB key that I take with me everywhere. But as you're well aware, I lose it once every six hours. So that's kind of a pain. I could sync it over something like Spider Oak or, or OwnCloud. But I think neither of us have had particularly great experiences with, with desktop syncing with open source solutions. And so that leaves me with something like Dropbox, which I don't really want running on my laptop all the time. And so moving this database across uh, different machines is problematic. And that still doesn't even solve the Android issue. And so I can't actually log in. You know, uh, and I, I want to just pause for a second. And I just want to say uh, we had a lot. I'm gonna, I might mention this again. We had a lot of really good threads in the subreddit this week. LinuxActionShow.reddit.com. And one of them was uh, how I migrated from LastPass and switched to KeePass and learned to love it. And that was such a solid argument that after I had a failed experiment with KeePass, I read that guy's post, and, and, and it really made me almost want to do it again. And so the reason why I'm bringing this up is I want to say straight up, I recognize that for some folks, this is a totally legitimate, totally usable solution. And I believe that if I hadn't used LastPass beforehand, if I hadn't tainted myself with the LastPass juice, I probably could have made KeePass work. Um, maybe. Uh, maybe. Maybe. But I do not want to diminish anybody who's using KeePass because if you are using KeePass right now and it's working for you, then that's half the battle, as G.I. Joe would say. You're there right now, and mm-hmm. I think you know that is good for you. We're not disparaging you for using KeePass at all. Uh, it just it sounds like it didn't work for you or me. Yeah, and, and here's the thing. I, like you, I would reiterate that at some point I would like to get on KeePass I just haven't found a way that works for me. And frankly, bef- like you said, you'd rather, you know, going to an encrypted text file, I would rather just, uh, my password management theme beforehand was I would simply come up with a theme and then surround it with, with like, you know, the date and, and different letters that apply to that specific, you know, instance. And that's, and then I would be able to remember and have a unique password for every site. It would just be things that I could remember. Um, and that worked decently well i would say but it's certainly not as secure as something like LastPass. so i guess i'll uh, i'll I'll, uh, I'll jump ahead a little bit um so what i wound up doing was i ended up looking at uh the the built-in manager in firefox now right off the bat there are some huge detractors for this the first one is 
it's obviously it's tied to Firefox. So if I don't use Firefox, I'm 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 kind of screwed. And second of all, I'm again, I have set myself up to rely on a a service of sorts. Now, where I have drawn the differentiation or, or the difference there is I am now going back to my uh, my method of at least I have an idea of what each password is for each different site. And I'm simply using Firefox to fill that stuff in to add security, because one of the pitfalls is it will store them in plain text. So anyone can open up Firefox and view those passwords. If you're, if you're not careful, it, it's stored encrypted on the hard drive, but it's not, if you open up Firefox and click on viewed, save passwords, you can see them in plain text. So to mitigate that, you have to set a master password. Now, Firefox actually has an extension for the YubiKey that allows me to secure my fi my Firefox password vault with uh, with two factor authentication with the YubiKey, and then using Firefox Sync, I, that's actually persistent across all of my machines. Interesting, and it sounds like this is sort of a uh, not only is this sort of a really easy to implement solution, but it's one that as long as you're already using Firefox, it'd be pretty easy to recommend to your average user too. Yeah, I mean, it's it's in, it's insanely simple to set up. You literally check the box that says remember passwords and then click on the button that says use a master password. Yeah. Um, you know, the extension, there's a little bit more to that. But the thing that I like about it is, yes, I'm relying on a service and no, I'm not 100% comfortable with it, but I trust the Mozilla Corporation a heck of a lot more than I trust a small startup that, that ran a password manager. And at least I don't think that they're going to get bought out or sell out or, or anything like that. Eventually, is this a long-term solution? Am I happy with this? No, I will probably move to something mm. else. Mm. But for for the week of October, where we're we are we're a doing an episode and b I have to get myself off LastPass as quickly as possible. This is the best I can come up with without mm -hmm. severely mm -hmm. hindering my my you know my workflow throughout the day. I need to be able to access my account. Sure, yeah. So let me tell you. I'm going to tell you about where I ended up. Uh, I wanted something. I just kind of felt like at this point in time. Uh, this, this line may not be crossed. This is my red line. And I, uh, I wasn't willing to compromise ever again. And, mm -hmm. uh, because I just want to do this one more effing time. And then, mm -hmm. and then, and then once passwords are finally gone and you know, this week we actually got, uh, we actually got some serious signs that this may eventually happen. So I thought to myself, I, I, I'm just, uh, I'm going to go with my fantasy. I'm going to go with my fantasy. So I looked at a couple of different options. Uh, and, you know, I am excited to say maybe one day we won't have passwords at all. I don't know if you heard, but Yahoo Mail just did a big update. And uh, as part of the Yahoo Mail update, you can actually opt to just have no password at all. Okay. And how, 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 do, you, how do you secure your account? Well, they, it, it is their own customized, quote-unquote, version of two-factor where they send a push notification to your mobile device, and it's a one-time generation thing, and you verify your identity. But the whole idea is you just don't have a password. You have a Yahoo account yeah, key. I don't like that. No, I don't like it either. I'm not going to use Yahoo Mail either. I mean, I'm not crazy. <laughs> well, yeah. But uh, my point is is that I do, I, I do believe one day we will be uh, past... One day we will be past the, the password. I have an S6 right here. It has a fingerprint reader. I have two bonobos sitting in front of me. They have fingerprint readers. We are getting close, right? And I can tie those fingerprint readers in with Pam. Like, it's, it's, it's getting there. It's just, it's not there yet. And so, I, for me, I'm willing to have a bridge solution, even if it's a 10-year solution. I, mm -hmm. But I would love it to be a five-year solution. So, I, I want, the first thing I wanted, Noah, is I wanted something as close to LastPass as possible. Something that ties in with my browser, something that works cross-platform. So, if I, if I have to sit down at a frickin' Mac... Or if I have to, like right now we have one Windows 10 computer in studio for testing. 
they just we're trying to get an A and B comparison between Skype and um, and uh, for Linux and Skype for Windows. And then we're doing recordings and analyzing the audio quality and all this. And mm-hmm. I sit down to use the freaking Windows computer, and I just immediately want to stab my eyeballs out. And things like LastPass and Google Chrome, moving those things over, make make Windows and the Mac tolerable for 15 minutes at a time. Do you follow what I'm saying? Like having this stuff cross-platform yeah. is really critical for me. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I looked at was Encryptor. It's a free open source password manager, and it also considers it an e-wallet, and it has a zero-knowledge setup. It's completely cloud-based for the storage, and they say it's private. It's open source. It's available. The code's available on GitHub. I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. It's called Encryptor. They say it's simple and easy to use. You store your sensitive data like passwords, credit card data, PIN, or access codes in the cloud. They say it's built on zero knowledge using the Krypton framework. Encryptor ensures that only user, only the user has the ability to access and read confidential information. Not the app's developers, not the cloud storage provider, or any third party. Encryptor only encrypts and decrypts your data locally on a device. No plain text is ever sent to the server, not even your passphrase. They have zero knowledge, they say. All right, have, have I piqued your interest at all? Very much so. They say also that uh, you don't need to register. You don't, handle, you don't hand over any personal data to their cloud service, not your name, not your email address. It only requires just a username and a passphrase. It's completely free, completely open source, including the library Krypton that's all built on top of. They have Android clients, Windows clients, Linux clients, and Mac OS X. And it's being sponsored by the folks at SpiderOak. No kidding. Yeah, and it takes Bitcoin donations. All really good things, right? Really yep. good things. Nice yep. things. Good active mm-hmm. community, Noah. But guess what's what? A, what's the catch? It yeah. doesn't work yeah. for me for a couple of reasons. Number one, Encryptor okay. doesn't work for me. It doesn't have a Chrome plugin. But I decided as part of this process, and I'll explain why, I'm dropping browser plugins. I'm done with browser plugins. I don't care if it doesn't have a browser plugin. But Encryptor okay. doesn't have one for Chrome, does have one for Firefox. The thing is, Noah, I'm just not at a position today where I'm going to accept any third-party hosting. I don't care if they have zero knowledge. I don't care if they got a, got a couple of yep. bucks from Spider Oak. It's just if I'm making this switch in 2015, I'm not going to another hosted service. I have learned my lesson about that, yeah. and I want to control it myself. I don't care that the source code is available on GitHub. I don't, mm-hmm. That's not enough anymore for me. I have yep. to be able to self-host it. And so, unfortunately, while I think it could work for a lot of people in the audience, Encryptor doesn't work for me. So okay. I, didn't, I, I decided not to go with Encryptor. I did look at like uh, KeePass C because I wanted something that also had command line capabilities and thought maybe I could make KeePass work that way. So KeePass C is a curses-based password manager compatible with KeePass version 1 databases and KeePass X. I thought that was pretty slick, but KeePass, you know, we talked about the limitations there. Yep. So I ended up with something that I almost don't know if I feel like I'm comfortable recommending to people. Okay. Uh, and so I would say with the caveat of if you're comfortable with the command line, if you're comfortable with GPG, even roughly, and if you also have your own sync solution or know how to roughly use Git or really have no knowledge of Git but could, are willing to just follow the prompts on the command line, I'm going to recommend my solution to you. And I'm going to give you also another caveat that I'm, three months from now I may change my mind. Okay. <laughs> I want to talk about pass. Password management should be simple and follow the Unix philosophy. With pass, each password lives inside of its own GPG encrypted file, whose file name is the title of the website 
or resource that requires that password. So for Jimmy John's sandwiches, I have a file called jimmyjohns.gpg. These encrypted files may be organized into meaningful folder hierarchies, so I have one that's called work, one that's called home, and one that's called Hadia right now. Each one is signed with a different key. And I can let Rikai get in the work one, I get only, only I get into the home one, and Hadia and I share one for the Hadia folder. Think about this for your enterprise. If you have shared passwords, you want to give certain departments access to passwords. Now, just keep that in mind. I'm going to get into how it actually functionally work for you. But just keep that in mind. It's a really nice way to use, to use technology that you already trust and you already have installed on your system to share passwords. But uh, st stick with me for a little bit. These encrypted files can be organized into meaningful folder hierarchies, copied from one computer to computer, and in general, manipulated using standard command line tools. In other words, if I get on a system, I don't have to load any software other than GPG. Well, chances are my package manager requires GPG, so I already have it on that computer, and all I, I could read any one of these files with GPG and my key. I don't need to have anything installed. I don't need to have a browser installed. I don't need to have X11 installed. I don't have to have anything installed at all. I don't even have to have Pass installed. Pass makes managing these individual files extremely easy. All passwords live in your home folder in a .password-store folder, and Pass provides some nice commands for adding, editing, generating, and retrieving passwords. It's really simple. And here's the best part. You got a lot of options how to sync this across computers, because this is a huge component for me. I've got a lot, I've got two bonobos right here in front of me that I need to have both passwords available on me, right. available for me. I got a machine right here off screen. I got to have passwords. I got two computers upstairs that got to have their passwords on them. I got two computers at home. I got to have passwords on. I got computers in the rover. I got to be able to get passwords on. And I want to mm -hmm. be able to on any one of these computers, edit, add, update, or delete a username and password and have it replicate to all of the machines. Mm -hmm. This is a key, key requirement for me. And this is often where a third party cloud service comes in. And this is what I love about Pass. You can roll this any way you want. It has built-in support for Git. So you can push and pull your password changes. You can track your password changes using Git. See who changed them, when they changed, revert back. Or you can roll your own sync, sync solution like with SyncThing and just sync that .password-store folder between your machines. Mm -hmm. You don't, you know, it could be really, it could be Dropbox, it could be whatever you want, because you're just syncing GPG files. So, I don't care if you put them on OneDrive or Google Drive, they're GPG files, right? I mean, it's, 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 it is really low risk. And, mm -hmm. and the really nice thing is there's no funky formats, no new paradigms to learn. If you install pass and bash completion, it's all on the command line. So, Noah, in fact, I'll, I'll pull up here on my machine on the, on the live stream, and I, mm -hmm. just, I'll just, I just type in the word pass. And it mm -hmm. lists the passwords that I have uh, right now in Pass. I have one for Dropbox, GitHub, Jimmy John's, and Steam. Now, I could go retrieve the password from any one of those, and if I do dash C, it immediately copies it to my clipboard. Now, Noah, I'm pushing that up to Git. And then on my DigitalOcean Dropbox, I'm pulling down. On my mm -hmm. DigitalOcean Droplet, I'm pulling down this, and I can do those same commands from any machine. I just SSH into my DigitalOcean Droplet. And so I started using Git push and pull, and I thought that was pretty neat. But I'm going to be honest with you, Noah. Too much work for me. Yeah, boy, I'll say that. Yeah, you're right. I was yeah. waiting until you get done, but yeah, way right. too, it looks like way too much work. So what I decided to do instead is I decided to scale back a little bit, and I'm not using the Git implementation. And the reason for that is, is just simply because I had to configure Git on every machine I wanted to mm -hmm. sync my passwords to, which meant 
installing Git if it wasn't installed already, uh, configuring globally my username and my email address, configuring globally the repo that that uh, Pass should look at. It was just, honestly, no, it was too much damn work, and I didn't yep. want to do it. Uh, so what I opted to do is instead, I'm just pointing sync thing on these computers at that folder directory, and it's just syncing mm-hmm. the GPG files around. And all Pass is doing, Noah, is it's just reading that folder. And so as yep. long as the GPG file is in there, Pass sees it. And so uh, what really is happening now is SyncThing is handling the synchronization across my machines. Mm-hmm. And Pass, the front end, is allowing me to read those files. And if you're watching the video version right now, I'm showing you the interface. You type in Pass, and it shows you your password store, and you can say you can break it out into different categories. Each one of those categories could have their own key. Each one of those categories is synced between your different machines. And then, Noah, and let me double check before I show this on screen, because this is one of those things that could reveal my passwords. Perhaps you're one of those blowhards that thinks the command line is hard, even though all I'm doing is typing P-A-S-S into a terminal and getting my passwords. I understand that might be hard. Maybe you're one of these guys or gals that needs to have yourself a GUI. Well, let me introduce you to Qt Pass. Qt Pass is a graphical way to manage Pass. You don't even have to do it on the command line. You can add new passwords. You can edit passwords. You can even synchronize with Git all from the GUI. It is a really easy way to manage pass, and the two things stay in sync. So if I add a username and password in the GUI, I can get it on the command line, and sync thing then distribute it to all my machines. And on all of my machines, I can just type in pass, or I can install Qt pass and have a GUI access to them. And here's another nice thing, is because uh, pass allows you to add your own fields, you can just label your own arbitrary fields in there, and then you can use things like, uh, I think it's called like FoxPass. They don't have a plugin for Chrome yet. But you can use things like uh, FoxPass to autofill forms just like you did with LastPass by defining your own fields in Pass. See, what I'm telling you here is with your own system, with your own sync solution, either using the built-in Git support, which is very nice and very easy to use, and it's a great introduction to Git if you're not familiar with it, or by tying it to something like BitTorrent Sync, Dropbox, or SyncThing, or SpiderOak, you can roll your own password system that has its own cloud solution that works on the command line or in the GUI. And so what my plan is, what my intention is, and this is the part I'm not so sure if it's going to work, but what my intention is, is to essentially install Qt Pass and sync thing on my main rigs. I've actually already done it. This week I already did it. On these machines here and my main machine upstairs and a digital ocean droplet, I have sync thing running. I was actually already deploying sync thing for, another, for, for something else we're going to talk about in the future. I was already deploying sync thing, and so this sort of just fell right in because I already had it installed on most of the machines. And um, it is, it's nice. In fact, uh, one of the things I installed this time around was uh, not just sync thing, but sync thing GTK, which is a full-on GUI for sync thing that is really nice. Uh, it's, it, it is a system tray icon now in GNOME. I can restart services. I can turn on the web. I can easily add new shares. Like here's, I can add a shared folder right here, all with a GTK GUI. I can, I can modify my settings for the daemon. I can, you know, say what, what ports it listens on all. I can turn on automatic UMP discovery right here. Easy to do. No, like, command line configuration required at all. So on my desktop machines here in the studio, I went with SyncThing GTK. And on the DigitalOcean droplet, I went with SyncThing on the command line. Really quick and easy to get going on the desktop. Easier, honestly, Noah, than setting up Dropbox. I 
I appreciate I, I I can appreciate the the individual components of of, of the advantages of, of of why you made your decision. The thing that where you lose me is uh, you have stopped placing emphasis or priority on the browser plugin. The problem for me is I the big thing I liked about LastPass was is it filled that stuff in. If it's just a function of remembering uh, a password, I can come up with uh, with other ways around that. What I really want is for everything to automatically get filled in when I visit a web page. So all I have to do is click OK, and then I just want to secure that yeah. um, with, here's, with some other way. Here's the reason. Here is why I ended up being OK with not using browser plugins. Now, for you, actually, there is a Firefox plugin for Pass. OK. Uh, and people like it. Um, oh, okay. All I don't right. use that because I think Firefox is a horrible browser. <laughs> Love you, Mozilla. Uh, so um, here's what I realized. What are the chances that I'm on a computer that I have my browser installed, I'm logged into my profile in my browser, be it my, my Firefox Mozilla account or my Google account, mm-hmm. I have LastPass installed as an extension, I'm logged into LastPass, and I have my two-factor methodology, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. What are the chances that I have all of those things, but not a terminal? Pretty damn low. If I have all of right. those things, I have access to a terminal, I have Quake installed, yep. or even on a Windows box, I've got Putty installed. And so for me, all of my passwords now mm-hmm. are an SSH command away. And here's what, if I'm going to be completely frank, and I probably shouldn't even say this on air, but I'll tell you the honest to God truth is some of my really important passwords that are really complex over time, from time to time, have ended up in either a BitTorrent sync folder or a Dropbox folder or a SyncThing folder as a plain text file. So -hmm. that way, when I'm setting up a new rig, and, you know, honest to God, this is the number one use case. Noah comes over, he reinstalls the machine I use for Skype or Mumble, and, like, he gets, like, 90% of the stuff installed, but, like, Chrome isn't logged in as me, and Spotify isn't logged in as me, and... Facebook isn't logged in as me. All these things all linked together, right? So I end up having to get all these passwords. And because I end up doing it all the time, because he's doing this to me all the time, uh, what I ended up doing was catting these passwords out to a text file, and then I SSH in to the rig that I know they're on. I cat that file, and I copy and paste those passwords into those machines and get logged in, because without those passwords, I can't even get LastPass rolling. I can't even get LastPass installed and set up. And so for me, my go-to solution was... Get, go SSH in and do a password anyways. And I realized, mm-hmm. well, if that's been my lowest common barrier to entry, like if I can always go to that, then maybe I should base my entire solution around that raw principle where I could get to it on SSH, SSH command line, and but it's meant to work that way. And so for me, I, saw, I, I thought about what would be the scenario where I would have all of that software installed but not access to SSH or access on my phone because there's also... There is a past client for Android, right? And so I realize that is very unlikely for me. I, if, I have, if I have the browser installed and I have the LastPass plugin installed and I have my dual factor authentication with me on my phone and it's asking me for my password because I'm logging into something, then I almost, also have, almost always have access to a terminal. And so for me, it actually works out a lot easier to SSH in, I type pass, and then there is a command to immediately copy it to my, to my clipboard without even displaying it on the command line. And I can just go right and log in. And, and for me, it's actually, I feel a little safer not having it in the browser at all. And also, I close that SSH session and there's nothing left on the main machine. You know, and for these studio machines here, that's kind of a nice feature for me. And it's also a nice feature for anybody at work, too. Yeah. 
I, uh, well, so first of all, I have never reinstalled a machine that I haven't left you with the previous iteration. So uh, you're, you're, <laughs> you're, 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 you're always I was just giving you a hard time. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm just saying, I was like, before you throw me too far under the bus, I, I always do. No, you leave your one, totally now that's only kidding. one step back. So once, once you commit, no, then, then just, you're kind of, I was just giving you a hard time. Cause it just seemed um, like a good, cause it actually is the number one use case, but I, <laughs> you know, it is, it is of course always in the effort of trying to improve production. Right. Right. Um, so I guess I, I guess I can see I guess the way that I have always viewed it viewed it from a LastPass perspective was I can inst I don't really need any particular permissions to install the LastPass browser extension and once I have the browser extension all I need is my YubiKey because the password to LastPass is obviously something easy enough that I can remember so my thought was all I need is either Chrome or Firefox to be pre-installed on the machine and then I have access to everything um, and that's that's a pretty low barrier to entry. What about YubiKey support? Did you are you concerned about like not using the YubiKey for that kind of stuff? Well, I I so I so with both of our methods with Firefox, there's a plugin that allows me to use YubiKey to secure my passwords. Oh, okay. And with you, I can store a GPG key on my YubiKey yeah. anyway. So yeah. both of those it, it would work in both situations. So no, I'm not concerned about it. The thing that I the thing that I'm struggling with is I like the autofill, but with the browser extension, I think I actually like your solution. Well, actually, I shouldn't say I think. I know I like your solution better because I'm not reliant on a service or a company. That is, like you said, it is the last time I will ever have to do this until we just get rid of passwords. So one of the nice things is, you know, uh, Pass does support LastPass importing. It's a Ruby It's a Ruby script. I didn't actually try it because I, I decided I kind of wanted to start fresh uh, with Pass. So I actually opted not to import my stuff. I I started to experiment with that and then just decided I'm just going to do a clean user database. And then when I find passwords that are like my, like, I know there's some passwords in there that are shared. And so as I find those, I'm going to start rolling those um, and yep. changing them. One more thing, though, that I, I really want to underscore, Noah, and I, cause, because to me it is so critically important. And it doesn't matter if you use the Git backend, which is super slick. I mean, I just want to emphasize here, you can use Git with GitLab or GitHub to to distribute your passwords to all your machines and track the changes. And if 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 I'm saying the word Git and you're like, I kind of know what that is, but don't understand how it works, it doesn't matter. Uh, pass makes using Git so damn simple that you just follow the prompts on the command prompt or follow the links I've included in the show notes and you can make it work. And it's, here's why that's neat. Because if you have like GitHub or GitLab, let's just go with GitHub because that's a really easy one to use you're uploading encrypted GPG files. So you don't really have to worry about them being posted, but you could have a private repo, which is what I chose to do for testing. When I'm on any machine in the world, I just log into my GitHub account and all of my usernames and passwords as individual GPG files are listed there. So if I need to know what my Jimmy John's login is and I'm on a new computer for the first time, I just log into my GitHub account and then I download that file and then I decrypt it using my keybase.io login. And it's all right there, no third-party software required because I'm just using standards. And I have to underscore how critical this is because at the end of the day, your usernames and your passwords are just being stored in standard GPG files. Mm -hmm. And even if pass were to go away, and I did some research into the uh, development of pass right now, and uh, it has slowed down. They had uh, 128 commits in 2012, 11 commits in 2013, 211 commits in 2014, and they've had 39 commits in 2015 so far. So a total of 389 commits. I mean, they're continuing to work on it, but it has slowed down a little bit. So yeah, but the the, the other side of that coin is 
if it's doing what it's intended to do, we may not need to continue to improve it. I mean, at some point, it is working. And so we just don't touch it. Right. Well, and this is why I'm pretty comfortable with it, because it, there is zero lock in here. I'm using sync thing to sync across my machines. And what I like about that is, yes, it's another component that I have to maintain, but it's a component that I was already going to maintain anyways. I was right. already planning to deploy sync thing. So now instead of running an additional sync service that depends on a third party, I am utilizing my existing open source secure sync platform. I like that about it. Number two, the other thing I like about it is just plain, it's just plain files. And pass gives me a really slick way to sign individual subdirectories that I, I can comfortably share. Like I can have, I can have pass, I can have pass be both something that I use in the workplace and personally for me. Mm -hmm. That's a big deal for me as well. Uh, and, 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 and honestly, I wish I could say, I think it's more realistic for more people, but because you have to set up GBG and because you have to be able to, you have to be comfortable on the command prompt to do it right or use QT pass. Um, I, 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 I think your, your pick is a better one for, for more people. And we've linked to all of these in the show notes. Um, and I think key pass is a really good alternative. If you've got a few machines and you're comfortable rolling your own sync solution KeyPass is also really good, but for me, I was comfortable doing the entire infrastructure part, and the most important thing was is no more third-party stuff. I just am not yeah. doing that with my passwords anymore, and that, for me, was kind of the end, the end thing that made me land on Pass. What I'm not totally sure about is if I get really busy, and I'm in work mode, and I just need to log into something right the damn now because I got to get something on the air, and mm -hmm. I, but first I have to SSH in and run Pass, Instead, with, with LastPass, you, you know, would have been integrated in my browser. I am a little worried about that scenario happening one too many times where I give up on it. But to be honest with you, it doesn't take me that long to freaking SSH into a droplet and run the pass command. So I don't think it's that likely. And also, that's what Gwake's for. I mean, I'm just going to have, I'm just going to be, I'm going to use Mosh, M-O-S-H. Mosh is much more, uh, much more tolerant on disconnects and putting my laptop to sleep and, re and reopening my laptop over SSH and changing IPs. I'm going to use Mosh, and I'm going to be logged into Gwake all the time. <laughs> I actually am right now. Uh, and I'm just going to have Gwake there, uh, and I'm just going to run the pass command and just have it all. It, it, that's my intention, at least, is to just make it basically available in the command line all the time and also have it synced to my main machines. You think I'm crazy? No, I don't think you're crazy. I, I think that in theory, I really like where you're going. And while my method may be a little easier and, and, and lazier, rather, is probably a better word to set up, I think that overall yours is a better solution. However, um, I, I'm a little bit worried about the security implications of how is that SSH box secured, right? If you just have a password on mm -hmm. it and, and it's mm -hmm. easy enough for you to mm -hmm. log in all the time, then that is a that seems like that's a point of weakness. And not, not only yeah. does somebody have access to the passwords, they have... They have a content listing. They have a directory of where those passwords go. Right. Um, now, so that would concern me a little the, bit. Here is so uh, so worst case scenario is right. They get they get shell access to my droplet, and uh, they get logged in as me. They also have to be in as my user, right? Because it's all mm -hmm. stored under my home directory and all that. So they have to be in right. as me. If they got that far, if they got to my droplet and they got logged in as me the individual files themselves themselves are still protected by my gpg passphrase oh and that's not what that okay the way you made it sound 
or maybe I mis I misunderstood. Okay, so you have to every time you want to retrieve one, you have to enter in that. Not GPG. every time. You basically you can authenticate your your pass session for a while, just okay. kind of like you would with you know other password managers. But if somebody else logs in, then they would get prompted to re-log in. Right. And when you want to make understand. a change, okay. if you want to edit or you know review or read or delete or add, it's going to ask for your GPG key, which for me is a is a long ass sentence that is not used anywhere else. So yeah. you you know it, it is. Fairly deep. Plus, on yep. top of that, I could start to lock down SSH itself, right? Or I could do yep. like you require a key and things like that. And mm -hmm. I may decide to go that route. But honestly, that's starting to walk a line of too much inconvenience. Yep. To get access to yep. my passwords. But yeah, yep. that's a good I question. Agree. Yeah. I the, the the what brings that up is I was uh, I was I was reading a document or reading an article about a guy who worked for Wired who who he essentially got locked out of all of his devices, like his laptop got wiped, his tablet got wiped, his phone got wiped. And the way the attackers did that was they called Amazon and added a credit card to his account, then hung up and called back and confirmed his identity by repeating the that by confirming the credit card that was on his account, got into his Amazon account and then used the last four uh, digits of his actual credit card to, to compromise his iTunes account. And then from there, they were able to, to compromise a bunch of his devices and all that has been since been closed. But it ha ever since I've ever since I've become aware of that, I always think to myself, maybe the first part of this solution is secure, but let's back it out all the way and see it, is anything that's tangentially related to my passwords can that be compromised? Right. And if so, could I find a way in? And that that kind of that's kind of a backwards thinking, and it's probably a little bit on the paranoid well, what side. I, I, what I, I love about it, though, so with the pass solution, what I love about it is it is GPG protected on the machine, right? I right. enter my passphrase on my machine here. And then mm -hmm. I just send it wherever I want. And the other nice thing is that Pass does have Git support built into it. And I have I have this broken out in the in the in the show notes. If you install the Git client, which you might already have installed, mm -hmm. uh, it is two commands, two commands. If you already have a Git account, it is two commands to set it up, to get Git configured, to work with Pass. And then it is one command to configure Pass to work with your Git account. It is mm -hmm. so, 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 so simple. I broke them out in the command and in the, in the show notes, the commands you need to run. And then you've got, you have got locally protected, locally encrypted passwords that are being synced up to Git. You're going GitLab installation or Git yep. or using sync, sync thing like I am. And there is really, as long as you have faith in, G, in GNU GPG, there's nothing to worry about. Like there's yep. like they can't, they, somebody can't compromise your Git account and get your files because even if they got your files, they're just getting GPG encrypted files. Uh, have a good time with that, you know. So that really makes me feel good about it. Did you follow? Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I, the the now that I understand how the uh, encryption on the file is working, I was under the impression that once you start pass and and decrypt pass, um, then you just SSH in and, and type the pass command and yeah, spits yeah. out the password. Now that I have a now that I have a clear understanding of how that works. It's it's a totally irrelevant uh, discussion. Yeah, no, I'm completely. Yeah, comfortable and you with know, it. you combine it with like a with an SSH key and things like that, and and, and also uh, we've linked to in the past to using Google two factor authentication with SSH logins. Even yeah, I wouldn't worry about it if as long as the database is encrypted. Like you said, who cares? Go ahead, have access at the droplet unless there's something else on there. <laughs> yeah. um, John Mangera in the chat room uh, wanted to bring a favorable mention to password safe, and I haven't. Uh, I hmm. haven't. I, I I didn't really look at it. Um, and it wasn't something that came across my radar and it doesn't sound like it came across yours either, but that might be something for anyone else to check out if, if, uh, if yeah. you want to take a look at it. I have a sense there's a few different solutions out there and I, I would love to still see something that uh, has better browser support, you know, something yeah. that, you know, I don't know, there's a lot of different options out there and 
I know a lot of you are using KeePass. I know that's super popular in our audience, and I was a little nervous coming on the air and saying I'm not using KeePass because I know so many people have had good luck with it. But uh, well, and we might, we might circle back to it. You never know. Yeah, you never know. We might. Uh, but I'd love to hear your your solutions to fix this problem. LinuxActionShow.reddit.com. Let us know. Uh, also, links and any any kind of tips and trips tricks you can share to help us get it going. Because sometimes people mention these things and you get pretty deep into it, and you realize there's little nuances you needed to know. LinuxActionShow.reddit.com. You can share that with the community and share it with us because we're looking for feedback. Just go find episode 387 over there. All right, Noah, that's the Linux Action Show's look at finally replacing LastPass. And that brings us to the end of this week's broadcast. But before we get out of here, we did want to cover some feedback from jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. And our first one came in from Nelson. He migrated to KeePass. Hello, Chris and Noah. I'm a big fan of the show. Great job, you guys. After watching episode 386, I decided to try migrating from LastPass to KeePass. And I found it to be quite easy, actually. Here's the steps I followed. I exported all of my LastPass entries to a CSV file, which is in the uh, LastPass uh, like advanced tools section. I installed KeePass from the Fedora repo. I imported the LastPass CSV file using the native KeePass importer. I installed KeyFox, which is the plugin to populate you know, the forms in Firefox. And then I installed SpiderOak to sync KeePass between multiple computers. Great call on that one. He says, I then moved KeyFox database over to the SpiderOak Hive. Another good call. Going forward, I just need to install SpiderOak and KeePass for any computer and also probably Firefox. I add to my home office, making sure to point KeePass to the database stored in the SpiderOak Hive, which is synchronized folder on the local computer. The KeePass plugin really brings this all together. I tested this and it works great. Hope this may help others who are thinking about moving to KeePass. Wow, what a great email about KeePass since we kind of didn't really get to that. And if you have a single computer or maybe two computers or maybe even like 10 computers, but you don't reload them very often, I could see this being a really good solution. Yeah. The problem is you and I change computers about as fast as the wind changes mm-hmm. direction. Mm-hmm. And something like this is just a total yeah. time suck. And it's, it's not just changing computers. It it's not just that too, right? It's also different distros. Reloading the machine once well, a week, that kind sorry. of stuff is common too. I didn't too. necessarily mean physically different computers. I meant different operating environments. Yeah. Yeah. However we get there. Yeah. Um. So... Uh, Jed writes in, you know Jed, oh, and yeah. uh, and he writes in with considerations for um, email on droplets. And he says, I roughly agree with Noah that running a mail server is not simple. Setting one up from scratch takes about two days to tune things like spam filtering. But migrating a mail server is a job I'd budget a week a minimum on and a few hours a month in maintenance. You guys are talking about running an email server on DigitalOcean droplets. The first thing I'd be wary of is disk I.O. I'm assuming that a mail server at work has about 10 years of mail and roughly six users. The mail spool takes 56 gigabytes. That is a mail directory, a, a Dovecot, IMAP mail server with the gzip extension. Every mail item is gzip compressed. Looking at the pricing on that much disk space on a DigitalOcean droplet, you're looking at $40 a month or $480 a year. Uh, compare this to Rackspace general purpose cloud instance and you're looking at 80 gigabytes for $175 a year. It seems that DreamHost has disk space at $10 a month or $120 a year, but less CPU. If mm. you're accessing your mail server over the internet, you are actually taking advantage of over 500 megabits of network bandwidth on a solid state can provide. Only if you are using Google His Fiber. His point being that uh, you you might not need an SSD unless you're on really a, fa- a really fast connection. Although, 
I wouldn't say that an SSD is just used for when you're accessing the machine. An SSD also comes in handy when you're doing updates on the computer, installing packages, or it's working on other things while you're accessing the machine too, because the SSD just provides you good I.O. throughput regardless of what the machine's doing. You know, the other thing about it is he is talking about um, running this, uh, you know, a a as a business enterprise box. And the reality is I don't think that's what the majority of people that were taking this this uh, bucket on were talking about. Most people that are doing it, it's more of like I'm going to play or I want my family email. For server. email yeah. And so, yeah. And so I don't think that a lot of this is, is necessarily applicable to, to personal email. Certainly, if you're going to get into the enterprise space, you know, um, though, some of this might be a concern, but you're probably not. You probably have an in-house server then, too. I would be I would be really interested to see like uh, to see if people have come up with really clever solutions to add a lot of big remote storage to a DigitalOcean droplet. Because I've learned mm -hmm. about like using Fuse to do a, like a remote file system or something like that. I'm 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 curious if anybody out there has played with that and could uh, give us feedback. But uh, he goes on to mention that uh, you know he mentioned some of the most important things like backup and disk requirements and maybe even mirroring to a droplet. He's got a really good price breakdown if you guys want to read it in the uh, in the show notes. He says entirely. He also points out it's entirely possible to split your IMAP apart from your mail services. That's another way you could do it is you know have multiple servers there. De definitely depending on. Uh, how many users you have using the system. He says that mm -hmm. way you have access to terabytes of storage because you could have the storage on one system and some of the front-end stuff on a droplet or something like that. And you'd have yep. access to, you'd have physical control over your backup depending on where you store the backup data. There's a lot of ways to skin this particular cat. And email, you know, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at migrating off of sync services that are hosted by third parties, migrating off mm -hmm. of password services that are hosted by third parties. But here I am using mail hosted by Google Apps. And this is something yeah. I've been grousing about now for a long time. The thing fast is, mail, was, yeah, I know Fastmail is a component of it, but uh, I got to think about it. I got to think I about it. You know? I have not been so happy with, and I was nervous coming off of Gmail. I have not, not a single bad experience, not one little thing, not one little hiccup that I can be like, well, I wouldn't have had that problem with Google. Not once, not even a little bit. Mm, okay. Or Dennis writes in. Just big reason I haven't made the move. Hey, Chris and friends, I love the show and listen every day at work or in the car. Keep up the outstanding work. Wow, thanks, man. He says, this is my first time emailing, so you know it's serious. I have a Linux problem. I'm a longtime Windows user, and I've been making the migration into Linux for a few years now. My main machine runs Windows. All the others are Linux or dual boot with Linux and Windows. The only reason I keep Windows around is because, number one, you guessed it, ladies and gentlemen games. Everyone uses it also, number two, for go-to person help, so I can't really get too rusty in Windows because I'm the go-to guy. He says it's a poor excuse, but it's true. Number three, Wi-Fi bridging capabilities. So let's pick it apart. Number one gaming, he says I probably could use Steam and Linux. Number two, I need to keep up with Windows while I can't really switch fully to Linux. I've noticed that the more I use Linux, the more I forget in Windows, and I keep running to people who need help with their Windows computer. Man, just set up a Windows VM for testing stuff. It's nice. And then number three, Wi-Fi bridging. This is why I am emailing you. I tend to break a lot of my computers when I mess around with them. And a big thing I do is use Windows to bridge the Wi-Fi and when I need to do repairs. I know I could always plug it straight into the router, but my router is in an odd place, so it's not really a solution for me. It would seem that no matter what I do or what I Google, I can't figure out how to bridge the wireless connections on a Linux machine to an Ethernet port. It's like two. It's like a two-click solution in Windows, and on the Mac, it's pretty difficult, but it can be done. This is the only thing I think I can't get done under Linux. If I could figure this one thing out, then I'm strongly thinking about switching my main desktop to a Linux powerhouse. Thanks for your time. I can't wait for your response, Dennis. 
Wow, Noah, so, do you have one for this? Yeah, I, I do. So here's the thing. I Admittedly, I was going through feedback yesterday, the day before, and um, all I did was take uh, my spare little, I call it my beta box I test things on, and just ran through it quickly to see if it would work, and it did. Okay. Um, but I don't have any real, I'm not guaranteeing that this is the way to do it. I just kind of figured it out. Um, inside of Ubuntu anyway, click on the network manager at the top, click on add, and you'll get a drop-down menu, Ethernet in, you know, all the different options. And one of the options is bridge. Um, Hold on. The so in network button. manager, you're telling me if I go, okay, where do I go? Network manager, where? At, uh, at the very top, uh, yeah. click, you see add? No, I don't know. I'm, I'm just using real network manager, not Ubuntu. So yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. I see add. Yeah. Okay. Add, yeah. And yeah. then there's a drop-down menu uh, and one of the options one, one is One of the bridge. options is bridge. Yeah. I see this. Yep. And then click on create. Yeah. And it gives you the option to add the two network interfaces oh, that you'd like to bridge. Look at that. I wouldn't do it because it might kick you off. Yeah, I the, won't. But I could just okay. choose my Ethernet, right? Oh, look, you can do a VLAN, too. Mm -hmm. That's Or you can bond connections as well. This is slick. So it seems like that is a. It seems like that answers his question. Um, the other thing I just want to throw out there, and I know you didn't really ask for my or our opinion on this. I'm going to give it to you anyway. Um, my answer to the uh, people uh, expect me to maintain or be Perkins or be, uh, you know, up to date on Windows. And so they're going to come to me for help is I have two answers to that. One is I will keep involved with, you know, some basic minimal Windows training so that I can keep current on that because I have to do the same thing for certain clients. The other thing is I just start telling people and I have for years. I just start telling people, listen, I can't really help you. If you want to switch to Linux, I'd be happy to show you how to solve that problem there. I can do it on my laptop. You know what? I know how to do it's that. So it's so uh, re not rewarding. What's the word? It's so freeing. It's so freeing just to say, yeah, you know, I don't really support Windows anymore. I've upgraded to Linux. <laughs> it really, really feels really good. Yeah. Uh, we got a special call out we wanted to make to a friend of the show uh, who has an Indiegogo going for some open source FOSS training. And I guess the money's going to a good cause too, right, Noah? Yeah. So basically he is um, he is providing uh, training and education for people that want to get started with um, with uh, Linux and open source. And I had a chance to meet this uh, this this really cool young guy um, at scale last year. And, and we sat and had had a uh, had a very, uh, very in-depth talk. He's a super cool guy. And he's got a little project going on. And so he asked if we would give a, 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 an honorable mention on the show. And so that'll be linked in the show notes if you'd like to contribute or see what he's up to. Yeah, he's looking to build uh, documentation and videos aimed at new users. And, you know, it's like $5 is the starting price. Uh, and uh, I think it's a pretty cool project. And there's a lot of different ways to go out there. But he's got ex good examples of like what he covered, like updating a Linux system, installing VirtualBox, command line basics, things like that. And... Uh, I think it's worth checking out. You can find it at indiegogo.com slash project slash open dash FOSS dash training. Or you know what? I'll be a lot easier just to click the link on our show notes. Check it out at jupiterbroadcasting.com and find episode 387 of the Linux Action Show. If you'd like to email us, go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and choose Linux Action Show from the drop down. We'd love to include your emails in the feedback segment. If you want to... Keep those brief and to the point. If uh, yeah, that's a good they, point. If, 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 if it's not if it's not rude to say that, yeah. no, um, you know, feedback has been getting longer and longer and longer, and um, a lot of times, the, what you've seen actually, what you're reading, if you think those are long, those are the ones that made the cut. The other ones were just so long that I got about halfway through them, and I I just I didn't have enough time to read the the rest. So if you're gonna email in, if you could keep those brief and to the that's point, that's point. super appreciated. No, that's that's a good point because it you know the more concise, the more weak, the more likely it's gonna make it on air the more likely we can make through it because we got a lot to get through each week. That's not like us trying to be mean or anything. It's just from a practical standpoint, it makes it a lot more easier and manageable for us. Uh, but we do love getting them. JupiterBroadcasting.com slash contact. We use it, 
you know, just even if you don't ever hear your email read, we're reading them and also we're using them to help inform the content we should make. So you're, you are voting in a, in a very real way by emailing us. Also, another real way you can vote is the subreddit, linuxactionshow.reddit.com. Great place to go to submit news stories, projects we should talk about, distributions to look at, comment threads where you want a really insightful community to comment. There's an active community over there. It's one of the best Linux resources on the web, linuxactionshow.reddit.com, and it helps make this show better. Also, another way you can help make this show better, patreon.com slash today. We are there trying to raise funds for next year, patreon.com slash today. Yes, it's a Tech Talk Today page, but that is because Tech Talk Today is a thank you to people who support the network at patreon.com slash today, where we're building out a runway, something that we can have a little budget predictability. If you've ever run your own business or if you run your own budget at home, you know how nice it is to have a bit of set monthly predictability budgeting. And that's what patreon.com slash today gives us so we can make plans for the future. And another key thing that supporting us at Patreon does is it allows us to stay flexible and picky with our sponsors. It's, it's, it has been my privilege and I think a good thing for the brand for Jupiter Broadcasting from day one to be able to say no to all online website advertising. And the offers have gotten more and more lucrative as the ad blocking stuff sticks up as crops up and they come with, you know, now they're offering to do just like, just put a text block on your, just put this text block on your website. Just put this on your website. That's all you have to do, Chris, is just put this block of text on your website. That's all we want. But you know what? Patreon.com slash today gives us the leverage to say no with future sponsors, existing sponsors, anything like that. And that's a really big deal. But the other thing that I think you'd appreciate as an open source enthusiast is it means that our number one for source of funding if we continue to drive patreon.com slash today, if we can get that up more, our number one source of funding comes from our audience. Now that's critical because we're making content for the audience. And so if you're out there, that's a pretty good alignment where our goals, our efforts all point to getting those Patreon numbers up, which means our goal and our efforts are all doing the content that our audience wants. Patreon.com slash today, help us invest in future shows and future efforts. It affects all of the shows on the network. You're talking about um, maintaining the status quo and talking about if people continue to contribute, then we can continue to maintain things. I would be super excited to see what happens if like Patreon just like took off and you just got like a ton of new supporters to see what thing, what crazy things you could do with it. Like the like what more events would we attend? How many more road trips would be taken mm -hmm. for meetups along the way and stuff like that? It's, How not, much it's stuff not even just that, too. It'd be like. uh there was a couple of things, you know, we ran into just for oh, a project production on this show that mm -hmm. a couple of times I thought if we got the funding up more, I would love to have just a little bit of weight to throw around to some of these open source projects to say, hey, the Linux Action Show, the world's number one Linux podcast is using your project to develop the show, but we need this feature added and we're willing to pay you for it. You mm -hmm. know, so not only are we advancing open source software and media production, which is desperately needed. But then we'd also be contributing to an open source developer. So it's not just like what more road trips and destinations and events would we hold, but it's also like how could we move the dial in media production for open source? And it's also mm -hmm. it's also about like what could we do that if you do it from the very beginning, when you create something from the very beginning for the audience, it's not for an advertiser, it's not how to monetize it, it's not what's going to get the most clicks, it's what is our established audience going to just effing love and 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 I, I have a very real world example for you. You know, we did a, we took a couple of cracks at how to Linux, and 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 to be honest, this is one of the lessons I took away from how to Linux was is we need to formulate our shows 
in a much different way if we want the audience to be passionate about them. And so the first time we sat down to plan the first iteration of How To Linux, the first conversation was, what's the tease block going to be? So that way we can have an advertising segment between the tease and then the main meet. Because we're going to put this up on YouTube, we're going to make it five minutes long, but we need to be able to pay for it. So how can we build this thing so that way we have a great spot for an advertiser to buy? That was a huge mistake. That was a huge, huge mistake. But that's what the mistake. What choice did you have? What? What choice did you right. have? Right. And that's the mistake you see a ton of podcast networks make, some big ones out there, where they have to build the content for the advertisers, like know-how, <clears throat> and, and it's not really for the audience. And that, it, it just, especially for the kind of stuff we cover that's really super niche, the Linux stuff and the open source stuff that's really niche, like that just doesn't make any sense. And so now, now that we're getting more and more funding from the audience, it's like, well, how can we build this thing so that way the audience is really grabbed by it? How can we do this thing so that way it really plays to what they love? And not like, how are you going to build this thing so that we have a built-in perfect slot for an advertiser? Yep. And it's, yep. not, it's not even about replacing advertising altogether. It is, no. a, it is about having a balance so that way you can be like, well, the main goal is pleasing the audience, and the main goal is what they're going to want. And then, and then if somebody comes along and they change something like supporting SOPA or they come along and they say, we want to do this, we get to say, no, no thanks. That's the main goal behind Patreon.com slash today. I know it has a Tech Talk Today name on it, but it really is about giving flexibility and leverage for the entire network and investing in the shows that we have today and creating new shows and giving us runway to budget and plan to do that. Boy, that was a long thing. I didn't mean to make it that long, but I'm really kind of super fired up about it. So I'm sorry. I can see why. Well, you want, it, you, want to, you want to be responsible and please your audience, not responsible and please your advertisers. Right. And I like what I love about it right now. And see, some people, and then I guess, I guess I'm just getting into this. Uh, see, some people are like, gosh, you always have the same sponsors. You always have the same advertisers. And if you think about it, that is like the most ridiculous complaint ever, because what we have done <laughs> is we have chosen sponsors that we truly think are great that we actually use. And in most cases, all of the hosts on all of the shows use all of the sponsors. Think about any other podcast network where that actually happens. And I can't say it's always going to happen, but that's pretty freaking unique, and right? And we would use those products and services rather or right. regardless of right. the sponsorship? That is, if you, if, if, if you, if I just, maybe if you've never been to media production, you don't understand what a freaking high bar that is to set. And so that is, that is the luxury that we now have because of funding by our audience. And, and, and the other thing that affords me, which is so important, is I don't have to spend eight to, to 12 hours a week lining up new sponsors, getting new ad deals, figuring out promo codes, having them establish landing pages with URLs, selling the company to them, selling what we're going to do, negotiating a contract, getting an ad buy done every single week so that way we can rotate through sponsors. Instead, we double down on really great sponsors we genuinely think are great for our audience and we have leverage and freedom and flexibility to do that because of our audience funding. And the more funding we get from the audience, even less sponsorships we have to take. And I think it is a brilliant cross because it means that, that, that your, some of your favorite shows, hopefully, I hope, are not dependent on a single source of revenue. And they're not going to be led around by the nose by any particular source of revenue either other than the actual audience itself. Because the end goal is to have the audience be the largest source of revenue and I got to be honest with you, the whole reason you're watching me gestate like this right now is because the audience spoke on the Patreon page and it genuinely makes a freaking difference. And that's why it's so critically, because you know what? Not a single sponsor cares if we switch to an audio format or a video format because we get so many downloads on audio that they don't care. 
They genuinely don't mm-hmm. care. It'd but be good I, enough for them, yeah. Right. It's good enough for them because we're still outperforming all the other shows. But the fundamental fact is it matters to the audience. And so here we are. We're now coming back up. We're walking this line. We're trying to reintroduce production and video production in a way that is still genuine to the show, but addressing what the audience needs. And it is, in my opinion, the best way for the audience to have confidence in the content that we discuss and cover because they know our, where exactly our loyalties lie. All right, I'm done, I think, but I'm super passionate about it, and I've never really gone into it that much on the Linux Action Show, so that's my thoughts on it. I'm sorry it went on for so long. Hopefully not I'm everybody tuned I'm sorry I you into it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that right there wraps up this week's episode of the Linux Action Show. Thank you so much for tuning this week's episode. Go grab an RSS feed from the show notes if you want to get it weekly. You, yeah, we put it out every single week. Isn't that something? We do it live over on Fridays. Go to jblive.tv to catch that, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to watch it in your own time zone because we got robots over there, and they're like, you are from this location. I will convert to your time zone which, when I was on the road trip, turned out to be extremely handy. So check it out, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. We'd love to have you show up in our live chat and hang out with us. And be sure to check out Linux Unplugged, even more Linux podcasting. It is our Linux talk show with our virtual lug. And we've had a great series of episodes for well, going on for weeks now. It's been great. So go check out Linux Unplugged if you want more Linux podcast goodness. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of the Linux Action Show. And we'll see you right back here next week. Check this out. This is actually kind of a cool thing. You know, the Linux Foundation has been doing uh, kernel developer workspaces, which I love mm-hmm. seeing people's workspace for some reason. I don't know what it is about that, but I just love it. And uh, they have a, a new one for uh, Linaro Mark Brown. Now, he works, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with Linaro, but he works at, you know, Linaro there, Noah? Yeah, you know about Linaro. So Mark mm-hmm. Brown works mm-hmm. there, and uh, he's doing so. When they went to Linus's house, they took a camera. They took a camera in. When Mark Brown does his, well, it's not so much... I'm not exactly sure what they did, to tell you the truth. Hi, I'm Mark Brown, Kernel Working Group Technical Lead at Lenora and maintainer of a few kernel subsystems. Uh, currently in Seattle to attend Linux Plumbers Conference. Aww. And welcome to my workspace. So when I'm traveling, this is what my setup looks like. Over here, we've got an ARM-based Chromebook, which I use for video conferencing. Since Linaro is a distributed organization, we do almost all of our meetings via video conference so that we can see each other's faces from time to time, uh, which is very nice. So um, I use the Chromebook to make sure that all the proprietary plugins needed for video conferencing work well and can't do anything nasty to my uh, development setup. You know, that's an interesting idea, right? Just Mm -hmm, using a Chromebook mm -hmm. for Hangouts like that? That's not a bad way to go, because they're not that expensive. He's got my XPS 13, too, uh, which is kind of neat. I don't know if you noticed this, too, no, but he's got a YubiKey. Yeah, the thing I wouldn't like about it is I I despise having to carry two laptops. I've worked for, I've done contracting um, for a couple of organizations Mm -hmm. that have mandated it, and Mm -hmm. I I come sort of all sort of creative ways to get out of carrying two laptops. The only way it'd work for me is I would, I would literally just put the Chromebook on my desk and when I was doing meetings, because you know, they're using the, they're using these for company meetings, right? Right. And I would, I wouldn't take it with me. Like you you wouldn't travel with it? No, no, it'd be for conference calls. So, you know, because the Hangouts are replacing the conference call. So right. you schedule it, everybody's going to be there at 9 a.m., and everybody knows what time to be there. So I would just keep it in my office. I would not. Yeah, well, yeah you're what, right. what do you do in your travel, though? You don't do the conference call. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, he's a kernel dev. He's big time. Uh, Mark okay. Brown's all big right. time. No? All right, all right. How he rolls. Right. Anyways, I'm checking out his XPS 13, and he's got a really sweet hub that I kind of want to want. I want to get it. 
the main development system when I'm traveling is this uh, Dell laptop. It's running GNOME. It's very nice, nice display, nice keyboard. And probably most importantly of all for me when I'm traveling, it's got incredibly good battery life, uh, especially with this external battery pack here. I can work for essentially an entire day without needing to connect to external power, which is um, extremely important to me. Over here, we've got my um, standard portable um, test system. It's a BeagleBone Black um, with a serial port connected via USB, as well as the power and a little uh, SD card reader so I can replace the kernel and the root file system without needing to connect, uh, have a network connection set up. So the great thing about this setup is that I can uh, fit it easily into a laptop bag and use it pretty much anywhere. So um, that's been my setup and um, thanks. Now, I'm looking at that and I'm wondering, did he, uh, did he, uh, did he put it out on a table and not show us his actual office? Because that was just a table. It looked like a dining room I, table. I think he was at a hotel. Oh, yeah, right. He said he was yeah. in Seattle. You're right, you're right, you're mm -hmm. right. Because I would, I would show my workspace, except for right now it's covered with Jimmy John's uh, 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 right. uh, bags. <clears throat> yeah, I, I actually, I have, and you, you've seen this up close and personal. There's <clears throat> there's my quote-unquote office, which everyone thinks is where I work, <laughs> but actually it's just a facade of a place where I bring people to, so that they, they think that I'm neat. And then there's the real place, where the actual shop where I actually do work, and that place is you need climbing gear and a hard hat to stand in because <laughs> you never know what might happen.